levels and feedback. This is what's called dead air. It's the new show on Kill Radio, Dead Air. How's that one working? Testing, testing. One, two, three, four. Neek Redfin's here. Hello. Hello. In the garden of Vita, baby. in the future, for that is where you and I are going to spend the rest of our lives. And remember, my friend, future events such as these will affect you in the future. You are interested in the unknown, the mysterious, the unexplainable. That is why you are here. And now, for the first time, we are bringing to you the full story of what happened on that fateful day. We are giving you all the evidence based only on the secret testimony of the miserable souls who survived this terrifying ordeal. The incidents, the places. My friend, we cannot keep this a secret any longer. Let us punish the guilty. Let us reward the innocent. My friend, can your heart stand the shocking facts about Radio Mysterioso? on the recording. It's uh, Radio Mysterioso. Nick's taking pictures of me. Um, if you follow... Is this working? If you follow the um, website and or anything else associated with Radio Mysterioso, like you should, you'll know that our guest today is Nick Ridfin, author most recently of The Real Men in Black. Right, Nick? That's right. And about 400 other books, which we may talk about during the show. Oh, we might not. Or we may not. Uh, we haven't heard from Paul yet. Uh, Walter walked in the studio. or uh, When we were coming up the stairs, he scared us by saying, Hey, hi, you guys! <laughs> but he's across the street getting um, a beer, I think. I don't know. We've had problems with beer on the show in the past. I don't, I'm not so sure about this one. Uh, have a drink of Coke. Uh, no beer for me this uh, show, because last time... There was beer in the studio. We all know what happened. At least Paul does. We were supposed to be talking about uh, the deaths of uh, re- recent deaths of many UFO researchers. At least that's what we were going to talk about first. Because of old age or mysterious? No, all of them basically. I think were of old age, uh, if I'm not mistaken, right, uh, Nick? Uh, Stuart wasn't. That was an well. That was yeah. yeah. Yeah, Nick called. I knew he was going to be in town, but we did not know until Friday that he was going to be uh, here tonight. Uh, Today we drove around L.A. looking at strange stuff. I took Nick to Devil's Gate. Hi, Paul. You're going to be on the air almost immediately. What would you think of Devil's Gate? Was that your first time? Yeah, I thought that was cool, just to kind of see a bit of history, you know, with all the ties and Parsons and things like that. It's uh, pretty good. Okay, just a second. 
It will not Devil's Gate is one of the most interesting places in uh, the L.A. area to see because of all that Jack Parsons history mm-hmm. and, and such and all the other strangeness associated with it. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of like one of these, like a weird magnet, you know, where just strange shit happens and it's kind of drawn to it, which, you know, it makes it all the more interesting to say, hey, you know, I went out there and saw it and got pictures and... Hey, uh, Paul, can you hear me there now? Yes, can hear you just fine, Greg. Oh, great. And Paul's coming in loud and clear. Uh, did, you, did you hear any of our uh, intro here? Wasn't that, wasn't that exciting? I just said we drove around L.A. today um, looking at weird stuff uh, based on my, my upcoming tours of Weird L.A. Uh, we went to Devil's Gate. We went to the Aetherius Society. Yeah, we, did. we got a full briefing as well. We got a full briefing from the uh, head guy at the Aetherius Society. Richard wow. Now, how come you've never done that with me in all the times that I've been out there? Well, you express no interest. <laughs> That's not true. Every time I come out there, I'd say, I'd love to go to the Ethereum Society Thursday night thing or whatever they do when they have their ceremony, whatever it is. Yeah, but it's but always it's, either you or I are not here on Thursday night or we're doing something else, but next time we'll do it. If you want, we thought nobody was there. We knocked on the door and we locked out. Somebody was just walking into the gate, like half a block down from us, and and we waved. And he came over and got the guy, and he came over, opened the gate, and talked to us for about half an hour about the important mission of the Aetherius Society and and their Operation Prayer Power and the Ascended Masters on Saturn and all that stuff. That's no fair. You guys get to talk to people who worship Cthulhu. That's what they do, right? That's that's what we're talking about. Yes. If you went over and told him that, he would say, oh, dear, oh, dear, no, no, oh, dear. He's British. He was very happy to find out that Nick was from yes, the, was. the motherland as well. Yes, he was. But, uh, no, right up until the point. There was nothing to do with Right up until the point, Nick no. told him he was from Birmingham, and then, well. I think he was from a, a, a less uh, desirable area of... Uh, no, he was from a much better, safer area. I think oh, it was, was like he? Essex or Devon or somewhere like that. Yeah. There's no more less desirable area than Birmingham. <laughs> I haven't Maybe Newcastle. Yeah, Birmingham's a bit like Detroit. Well, no, actually, it's it's been vastly improved in the last ten years. It's all been rebuilt, gentrified. Yeah, it's totally different now. So. Oh yeah, no, I'm sure Manchester's the same way. It's all it's very nice now, and yeah. you know they probably instead of putting up bands like Joy Division, they probably send up bands like or artists like Katy Perry now or something. Very corporatized. <laughs> yeah. What I said in our um, preview is that we're going to talk about uh, people that uh, dead ufologists and people associated with UFO research that happened with alarming frequency this year. But um, right before the show here, we were saying that uh, with the exception of one of them, it's all been basically old age. Yes. And the the, yes. Uh, the one exception to that, and you and Nick knew him better than much better than I did, was Stuart Miller. Yeah, yeah, I mean, he, oh, he was only, I think he was only 58. He died in a motorcycle accident back in May, I guess it was. Right, Nick? Yeah, that's right. I mean, Stuart, a lot of people don't know that Stuart actually ran like a business where he would train people how to ride motorcycles, you know, give motorcycle um, lessons. And the first time I actually met Stuart, although I'd corresponded with him and he'd interviewed me for his old UFO review, sort of 2005, his online magazine. Late in 2005, what happened to be back in England, 
um, he came down to visit me on on this huge bike, and just you know, this rumbled up on the driveway and uh, a, a car bike. <laughs> yeah, car bike, and and we did like this two or three hour interview, you know, and he and it, for his for his UFO review, and he you know he turned up in all his leathers, and he was a big guy, you know, he's probably about six foot three or four, I think mm-hmm. Stuart was, and um, yeah, we had a good time, and I think he was sort of like Stuart, you know, the biggest tragedy of all is because of his for his family and friends, you know. And for Stuart himself, but I mean, in terms of ufology, it's a big tragedy because he was a big breath of fresh air who didn't just sort of go with the flow to get audience figures or to kiss ass. You know, he actually questioned a lot of stuff and said, "Well, you know, this is interesting, but you know, let's hear the other viewpoints as well." And he was someone very open to realizing that there was a phenomenon, but it's not necessarily what it is and he didn't feel the need to promote this angle or this angle just to sort of you know get himself in the ufo field with quote the right people or whatever yeah no he he had a conference in 2006 uh, that both nick and i spoke at i think there were four speakers um, i can't remember what you talked about nick because uh, i was in the back drinking with Stuart. <laughs> but uh, you know i gave a talk where I sure demolished I Wilbert Smith, who is a, a ufological icon, and he had Neil, Neil Morris, Edmund Morris, no, not Edmund Morris, Neil Morris, I think it was. Anyway, he had a guy who gave a lecture, a very pro-alien autopsy lecture, and then he had Dave Sadler, who talked about um, ghosts at a 2,000-plus Neolithic burial chamber on the same day that England was playing its first game in the 2006 World Cup. So his attendance was going to be low anyway. And, you know, he put people on the bill who were giving... Normally at a UFO conference, you'd expect people to say, Roswell, absolutely, Rendlesham, 100% alien. And he had four guys there, because I'm pretty sure Nick wasn't talking about um, something being alien. He had four people speaking at a UFO conference. None of... Well, okay, the guy with the alien autopsy was very pro-alien. But the other three guys were basically um, either not pro-alien or on the fence, or in Dave's case, not even talking about UFOs at all, because <laughs> he, he changed his lecture just before he came in, so decided to talk about something else, which Stuart was perfectly fine with. I think Stuart found uh, Dave's lecture more interesting, actually, given that it was about ghosts than it was about UFOs. So, was that, was that you know, before I, New Frontiers or after? That was... I think it's after. after. Yes, because he and I, you know, once I noticed the... Uh, the attendance, um, I walked back to him. He was, it was in a hall, and uh, there was a bar there. And there were only about 20 people in the audience. And so I walked back to him. It was in the morning. I think it was while Nick was talking. And, you know, I sort of said, wow, tough sledding. And he went, yep. And I said, no, I'm sure it'll be better this afternoon. And he just looked at me, and he said, no, it's going to be worse. <laughs> and he, walked, he walked around behind the bar, poured himself a beer, poured me a beer. I think this was about 10.30 in the morning. Came back out. Uh, gave me my beer and he said, um, "Fuck it." <laughs> we, as a, you know, we had a couple. We had a couple of drinks and we were talking and listening, and you know, we all had a good time. And that's sort of who Stuart was. He just didn't care. It was because he had an interest in the subject. Um, he didn't care about sales. He didn't care about how many people read or listened to him, which is why probably his magazine failed after four issues. But um, you know, you anything, not just UFO research, anything needs guys like Stuart Miller who are interested in the subject, are willing to listen to all reasonable points of view and, um, you know, give everybody a platform. So he was, you know, he, it's a real loss. 
um, even though he hadn't been in the UFO field or the paranormal field since his magazine folded about a year and a half ago. Um, that was his sort of finale. But, you know, he was only 58, so he might have come back. I suspect after a couple more years, he might have sort of gotten over the failure of the magazine and sort of wandered back because he, he had a genuine interest in the subject. So he is well missed. Yeah, I had um, one interaction with him, um, or a, a couple, actually. I talked to him on the phone twice. Um, I can't really add too much to what you guys said because you actually met him, talked with him, interacted with him um, for more than a hour or so he interviewed me for um alien worlds and uh he didn't ask you know he really particularly just wanted to know what i had to say and um that i mean he he actually basically interviewed me like i would interview somebody on my show he was he was um respectfully um what's the word skeptical yeah he and was kind of like a, he was a british greg bishop there you go <laughs> and then he uh you know, he wouldn't judge you for what you said, but he'd make sure that you were well supported in what you were talking about. And if you were, he was just like, you know, right on. You know, I may not agree with you, but right on. At least it's something different. Um, at least different than he'd been hearing it, uh, himself. So, yeah, uh, I agree. Great loss, and I wish I'd gotten to know him. Um, yeah, I don't think he was as well known. In fact, I know he wasn't as well known over here. It's you know, people like Stephen Bassett become well known. And people like Stuart Miller don't become well-known in North America. But Stuart, besides doing Alien Worlds, he was for years a regular commentator on Errol Brusnap's radio show out of Toronto, um, Strange Days Indeed. Oh, yeah. He's a regu regular contributor to UFO Updates, so you can go on the web and listen to him or um, read what he wrote at UFO Updates. And he also had, before Alien Worlds, he had an online zine called UFO Review that I think went 18 or 19 issues. Yeah, and I he remember. Would he would publish interviews. He did an interview with me. I think the interview was 40 pages long. Well, I mean, it wasn't one of these little three or four page puff pieces that you see in a lot of other magazines. He would go in depth and he would talk. He was as interested in the people and what made them tick as he was in the subject. And he was interested in the subject too. But it was, I thought that was a really nice mix that you could have a, he could converse with anybody because even if he didn't agree with them, he could still find them interesting in and no. of themselves. Yeah. Very rare. Indeed. Like it, I said, it, the British Greg Bishop. Huh, exceedingly rare, um, where you won't get, let your, whatever, your uh, prejudices or your preconceptions about something get in the way of hearing what the other person is, is trying to say. I mean, I know I'm guilty of that. I think Stuart was actually quite a bit better at it, about letting the person say what they wanted to say and making it clear in their mind, in his mind, and most importantly in the audience's mind, what their message was and how well-supported it was, and that, that's really, really, really rare. Usually it's either a puff piece or somebody trying to cut somebody down on a technicality, and that's, that's all too prevalent. And so I'm, I'm sorry, that, uh, sorry that he's gone, sorry he can't do some more uh, work, and that I didn't talk to him a little bit more. Anything else, Nick? Um, well, the other thing I would add is that in terms of Stuart's approach, I think... You know, he was he was more willing, certainly with UFO Review and Alien Worlds, to get a lot of alternative points of view and articles and theories in the online magazine UFO Review and in the print magazine Alien Worlds. And I think one of the reasons for that was because he was just dissatisfied with this whole angle of 
60 years of just collecting reports, putting them in a filing cabinet and say we've gotten reports of this so we know something's going on. But what he, what he was dissatisfied with, which what dissatisfies me as well, is that ufology has become sort of so safe. You know, it's become very much a belief-driven thing where this is the abduction guy who believes this, this is the crop circle person who believes that, and it's become like a, more of a self-promotion yeah. thing. And they, they li people listen to the story and they yeah. all nod and say, yeah, yeah. And, and Stuart, that's about it. Yeah, and Stuart was more of the opinion that he was kind of frustrated, I think, that, yes, we got the reports, we got the filing cabinets full of the reports, <laughs> but what we didn't have was... It was too safe. I think he, he, he perceived ufology as, as becoming too safe and not worrying, wanting to rock the boat because it was good at the conferences and people were trying to promote themselves or whatever, which to a degree at least, a small degree, I understand. But also he recognised that if we're going to progress in the field, we've got to do something different to what we've done in the last 64 years. And that's why, you know, he was willing to entertain different theories, ideas, different people to and sh demonstrate that there was another side of the subject that most people didn't want to address, want to address. Um, purely and simply because, I think, that they perceived it as just not good for business. And, you know, it's like, well, no, I mean, why, why, why is yeah, it not good for business to question yeah. things? Even if you find something profound that doesn't uphold something that's been... Right. Believe for fifty years. Yeah, it's not a it's not a TV show or something like that. You're trying to figure something out and discover what at the root of mystery. What what was wasn't it kind of the the more controversial nature that drew a lot of people to the subject in the first place? So you would yeah. think that they would want to continue that tradition to keep drawing more people because because that's what interests people is when a subject touches a nerve and you go, whoa, what's this? Well, that's, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's true. But yes, yes, it is. I didn't know Walter was there. No. Yes, <laughs> yes, Walter just showed up and scared the crap out of us as we were coming up the stairs. <laughs> hey, you guys! <laughs> <laughs> and it wasn't one of he the people that. from the um, from the uh, 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 Neuroticos Anonymous or whatever it is next door there. Are you sure. <laughs> well, you don't have an accent. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I mean, what yeah. I would say, I mean, Walter makes a good point. You know, and I think the thing about the UFO subject, like I always say, the U in UFO still stands for unidentified. You know, it doesn't stand for alien spacecraft, even though that might be a viable scenario. But at the end of the day, there are other interesting scenarios. And I think Stuart recognized that over the last certainly 10, 15 years, ufology has been very much turned into a business where certain players they want to say what they think but they don't want to rock the boat and that's sad and and Stuart was willing to rock the boat and he no. was willing to interview those people who thought outside the box you know and who didn't really care what people thought you know about their views only the fact that they got an interesting story to tell yeah and I think he recognised that and that, that was a good thing so I uh, you want to move on? Paul? Yeah, sure. I would just, the last thing I would say about Stuart is he was typical of what I call the British right, 40th, in that he wasn't restricted to UFOs. He was interested in everything. Mm. And he wasn't, he didn't compartmentalize. 
you could have a conversation with him where you could talk about Bigfoot and lake monsters and UFOs mm -hmm. and ghosts all sort of related to each other. Yep. Whereas if you come to the United States, you can find guys like Jerry Clark, who Jerry's a true 40 and he's written about all of those things, but he will never link or even consider linkage between any of them. Mm -hmm. So whereas the Americans tend to compartmentalize and even specialize, uh, I've always found the Brits, guys like Andy Roberts, David Clark, Nick, um, Stewart, you know, those guys, Dave Sandler, they'll do, they'll look at it all. It all interests them, and they're willing to at least entertain the possibility that there might be some linkage, some sort of grand unified field theory of the paranormal. And um, as a Canadian torn between those two empires, <laughs> I, tend to, I tend to gravitate more towards the mother country than I do my rambunctious, compartmentalized southern cousins. So, um, With a very few exceptions. Yeah, Walter says he's going along with the unified theory idea too. It would be nice to have something like that, and I'm I'm excited when people make moves in that direction, or at least don't have the walls, mm -hmm. like you uh, you and Nick both said. Um, I was I just talked to uh, Barry Taff uh, last week. Do you know who he is, Paul? Name doesn't ring a bell. He, do you know the entity haunting that the movie was based on? With Barbara Literally. Hershey about the woman in Culver City who was uh, with, uh, and Nick says, with large tracts of land who was repeatedly, <laughs> repeatedly sexually assaulted by some strange entity. This happened in the early 70s. Um, Barry Taff was in his 20s, I believe, working in the psychology, I guess, parapsychology department, um, if there was one at the time at UCLA. And has been doing uh, paranormal and ghost type and, and haunting investigations for, from a scientific viewpoint, as a scientifically trained um, person since the, the early 1970s. I talked to him a couple weeks ago. He has a book called UFOs Above, Ghosts Below, I believe. And I think he's a, a, on, kind of on the same path here, coming from the um, more of the haunting ghost area than the UFO area. So he'll be on in a couple weeks here, and that's going to be a, I think that'll be a pretty good show. Oh, good. I'll tune in. Sounds sounds interesting. What did you think of last week's show? Did you hear it? No. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> That's all right. I mean, nobody's required to listen to any of these shows, no, except this one no. here. The Today's show don't. you're required to listen to. Yeah, yeah, great. I usually don't mm -hmm. listen to them live anymore because you're so good at podcasting them now. Uh, I just haven't gotten around to listening to it yet, but, um, you know, it's 12 o'clock or 12.30 here my time, so... By the time you're rolling or finished, I'm, I'm sometimes in bed. So I, I listen to the podcast later. I'll check it out. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, the, 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 not even connected, but um, we should move on here. Um, well, the next person I can think of, and there's quite a few here, was uh, a friend of mine, personal friend of mine. I don't know if you two have thoughts about him. Um, Nick met him, Gabe Valdez, uh, oh, yeah? who died last month. Um, I can't remember the day, very early in uh, either late August or early September. Uh, and I went to the funeral. Norio Hayakawa was there. And a um, uh, lot of people, like uh, like 400 people showed up at the church. Mm -hmm. I didn't know he had so many friends. Also, apparently, um, Bobby Unser of the Unser Racing family, I guess they were friends of his. Uh, they were from New Mexico. Uh, I don't know if they had any interest in his cattle mutilation stuff. If people don't know, he was a uh, highway patrol officer, New, New Mexico State uh, Police, 
officer from uh, who worked Dulce, uh, which may give a lot of people hints about what was going on with him in the late 1970s and through the 1980s, right in the middle of the cattle mutilation thing. And he uh, started out thinking there was some sort of, uh, if quote unquote, alien connection, and he end up ended up um, discarding all that and saying no, it was a pretty much. Uh, earthly, as far as he could tell, with a few, very few exceptions that were very strange, pretty much an earthly phenomenon. And um, he was, uh, he had surveillance things in his house. He, had, he found microphones embedded, uh, hidden in phones, in a fire alarm, a fire, uh, what's it, what are those called? A fire detector, smoke detector in his house, various places. So he was monitored and he had every reason to be a little bit um, nervous about what he was doing. But he, he, he did not accept the the, um, the the what's the word? Not the skeptical, but the uh, debunking. I get not even debunking the fundamentalist skeptic uh, idea that uh, the mutilations were all caused by uh, misidentified animal uh, predator uh, attacks and and uh, scavenging. And uh, he, when I was working on Project Beta, he immediately he didn't even know who the hell I was. Um, I located him through the New Mexico State Police. They gave me, told me where he was working. I went over there. <laughs> he met me, and within the next day, he was giving me all his files about Paul Benowitz and all the stuff that happened up in Dulce. He just left him in a room with me. He said, I got to go work. I'll be back in a couple hours. Do whatever you want. Take pictures. Look through all them all, and we'll talk about it later. Hmm. This was in the first like day that he met me. Um, and after that, he would give me regular updates about what was going on. He always wanted copies of the book to give to people because he liked, I guess, he liked how he was presented in it or something. But uh, And his family was, uh, at least his wife, um, who was the only one I really met until the funeral, were always very welcoming to me. Um, just really nice people. And uh, I would never say anything bad about Gabe. And apparently nobody else really wanted to either. He's a very popular, well-liked guy. And I think kind of almost forgotten, almost unknown uh, uh, force personality researcher in the in the strange cattle mutilation uh, realm. Did you know anything about him? Uh, but Nick met him once. We were in in yeah. Albuquerque and we went to lunch with right. him. Yeah, I mean, he was very generous. He bought our lunch. You know, yes. he wouldn't even take. You know, we said, you know, we'll pay. He was like, no, no, no. You know, I'm buying your lunch. And you know, I think people like Gabe were important, and the ones who are still around are. Because, you know, you get a lot of dogmatic views within the UFO field where somebody says, I believe this, I believe that. But really, the most important people to go back to are the people who are directly involved. You know, and Gabe could have actually could legitimately claim to have been in the thick of things when the whole mute stuff was kicking off in New Mexico, you know, and the police department and the FBI was sort of tangentially involved. And... You know, he was out there in 75, 76 looking at these sites where they were finding the bodies and getting stonewalled by Los Alamos and all sorts of things. And so, you know, it's like, well, listen to these people. And just because he might come to a conclusion that differs to what this researcher thinks about aliens or whatever, I think the important thing is that researcher or that author wasn't there. Gabe was the person who was there, you yeah. know, and so don't you know don't don't be arrogant enough to think I know what's going on. Actually, listen to the people who were there, and I think that was a good thing about Gabe. He was actually willing to discuss his views. Yeah, and I mean he told he told that one weird story as well about how he felt that there'd been a lot of Bigfoot sightings 
Yeah. I don't know if you remember this, around mm -hmm. the air. And he felt it was actually some sort of hologram created by the government to deter superstitious people, to keep them away from the area, which, you know, was a, a v interesting and weird scenario. But yeah. it came from a very well-respected person who liaised with the FBI on cattle mutes. So, you know, he, he had a profound story to he tell. He had no nice words for the FBI about their investigation <laughs> into cattle mutilations. Yeah. Oh, Walter is uh, <laughs> shrinking down in his chair. Well, it was the uh, retired FBI agent, Kenneth Rommel, yeah. that he had the problem with. Mm. The one that did the um, study uh, was commissioned by... Who was that commissioned by? Was it commissioned by the... I can't remember who was. If it was the cattle people or the state authorities, yes, or? it was. It wasn't the FBI. He was a retired FBI. No, it wasn't agent. for the FBI, no, but they hired him. Yeah. Head it, yeah, yeah. He said that uh, Rommel had no idea. He said um, he said the closest he ever been to a cow, a cow was um, a steak on a plate in New York City, <laughs> <laughs> and he didn't know anything about it. And and the guy was full of crap, and he didn't even look into the. Mm -hmm. And he also said the very strange thing, which a lot of people know was that while they were doing the investigation, he said no cattle mutilation episodes whatsoever <laughs> anywhere in New Mexico or any a lot of places for that matter. I think they basically stopped. As soon as he turned in the report, they started up again. Mm -hmm. So when the actual uh, investigation was going on, for some reason it stopped. So either aliens are going, oh, the FBI, or it's somebody else mm -hmm. more likely to me, like Gabe said, somebody else that is very close to home that knew what was going on. Mm -hmm. Um, do you guys remember a film from the 80s called Endangered Species? Yeah, Robert, what's his name? Robert Ol uh Who played in that Vegas show. Um, uh, Robert Urich. Robert Urich, yeah. Mm -hmm. And Jo Beth Williams, she was the sheriff. And it was all about the cattle mutilations and, mm -hmm. and things like that. And it's that movie's almost impossible to find, mm -hmm. it seems. Mm -hmm. I find that very interesting. Mm -hmm. It was one of the first movies that... It was the first movie, I think, ever that dealt with cattle mutilations and <laughs> talked about, okay, who's really behind it? Mm -hmm. And if I recall, Peter Coyote was the evil government guy, and it was all that kind of thing. And it was the government in that film. It wasn't aliens. Yeah. Right. Yeah. What, what year was it? Oh, early 80s. 82? About 82, 81, 83. Uh, whoa! See, as soon as we say something against the government or anything, the mixed microphone basically fell out of its stand by itself. <laughs> He didn't touch. He wasn't even touching it. Yeah, that was just downright spooky and bizarre. I think he did it with his foot just to All freak right. us out. Could be the Miller draft that's doing it, maybe. I don't know. Why do you think I showed up, guy? Ooh. Evil government man. Plus, it's Miller draft, so Stuart Miller probably did it. Oh, yeah, that's right. Stuart, Stuart's leaving his mark. Yeah. yeah. And, of course, evil government man is drinking a bush. <laughs> 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 Um, let's let's uh, move on to the. Th you guys may think of more too. I got two more that I remember um, uh, can remember that uh, passed on this year, and one that not too many people outside the UFO uh, arena know about. Um, Bob Bob Gerard of Arcturus Books um, passed away. I think was it last month yeah, or was something it? like that? Yeah, yeah. Um, a lot of people at the same time. Um, Bob Gerard ran Arcturus Books since what? Since the 1970s? Yeah, something like that, yeah. Yeah, mm -hmm. and he sold exclusively, um, probably, you know, 75% UFO books, mm -hmm. but also other paranormal books like, you know, Bigfoot books and mm -hmm. hauntings and para parapsychology books. He carried Excluded Middle for a while. I remember dealing with him on that. He gave me good reviews. But the funny thing about Bob, um, 
Bob Gerard, and, and Nick and I were talking about this today, which some of you listening may know. He put out this giant catalog. Are you still there, um, Paul? Oh, yeah. Okay. He put out this giant catalog for his before the Internet. He put out this catalog every... It wasn't every month. Yeah, it was every month. Was it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Every month um, describing which books he'd gotten in and reviewing every single one of them, or at least as many as he could get in there. And if he didn't like the book, he said so. Well, he, he would say, this book is terrible. It's a piece of junk. Nobody, why did the person even write it? And he was selling you the book. He would actually sometimes say, don't buy it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and he's a bookseller. He's just like, this is just shit. Don't do not buy it. <laughs> Was it you or somebody else was saying they saw him at a conference, a guy was trying to buy a book off him, and, and Gerard was trying to convince him not to buy the book <laughs> right in front of him. No, you don't want this book. This book is it's, it's a piece of crap. Don't, just, no, you don't want it. No, no, no. I don't, I don't, can I have it for free? No, but you don't want this book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, some of them were, and others were collections of stuff he, he sold. Yeah, was, they were just collections. I, the, my interaction with Bob Gerard, besides... Um, uh, excluded middle was um, I wanted to publish his review of Cito's New Friends. Remember the Leah oh, yeah. Haley book mm-hmm. about the children's book about abductions? Mm-hmm. Did you you've heard of this one, right, Paul? Uh, no, I don't think I have actually. It's a children's book about abductions and how wonderful the aliens are and how they're our friends. Um, oh, Bob Gerard carried this. I have it. I'm so proud to own a copy. Bob Gerard carried this book. And his review, I remember it was it was an extremely negative review, but something about at the end he said something about you know this book should never have been published. It's teaching kids to be friendly with these evil aliens. The best thing you can do with this book is lock it in the gun cabinet with the guns so the little kitties don't blow their heads off. <laughs> so I, I wrote to Bob and I said, Bob, can I publish that's in the magazine? Can I republish it? And I'll put in you know all your information in the book. Well, I'll give you a free ad. And he said. No, I changed my mind about it. No, no, don't. Oh. And I guess he'd written to Leah Haley or something and come to some some kind of understanding where he. But it was such a great review because it was it was he would absolutely hated the book hmm. and he was selling it and he gave it this horrid horrid review. What I just said, you know, <laughs> lock it in the gun cabinet no, if you have to buy this book, <laughs> you know. Um, and I I've ordered books from him. I've ordered books for, mm-hmm. for you know throughout the years from him. I remember his ads he put in UFO magazine. What did he say? Non c- non customers are non people to us. <laughs> <laughs> and um, he had some a couple years ago. He had some uh, health problems. He was mm. in the hospital, and a few people th- tried to pass the hat. I don't know how um, successful that was. Mm. Did you ever have any interaction with either of you with Bob Gerard? I did. I mean, when I was back in England, I think from probably 88 to at least the late 90s, I used to buy a ton of stuff from him. I, I mean, all your, like your magazine excluded middle. And because all the, like the zines at that time were so hard to come by. Yeah, you know, especially the, over in England, if yeah, they were published here. Yeah, the deal was, you know, you'd either have to just send money off to all these different addresses. But Bob, you know, Bob stocked excluded middle he stuck dharma combat yeah he stuck steam shovel press yeah, yeah. Um, and a bunch of other ones you know that i oh, subscribe to nations uh what was west nations magazine damn it Cra- anyway. crash collusion yes crash yeah. collusion and i used yeah. to get all those yeah. every month or every issue through bob gerard yeah. and i just send him like a, a you know a bank check and he just 
you know, I just order yeah. 10 magazines a month and a couple of books and a couple of old items. I think or Miles Magazine, Elf Infested Spaces, came out mm-hmm. through Gerard, too. Yeah. And he did his own book, which is a really interesting one about... Christmas Eve about a bunch of mice. Do you know that one? Remember that one? Yes, I remember. Yeah. Yes, and he sold it. I never had. I never got yeah. the book though. Mm-hmm. That must be. It might be worth something yeah. now. Did you ever order anything from Arcturus Paul? No, actually, I never. I don't think I've ever ordered anything from any publishing house, including Amazon online. I just I buy books in stores. I'm like, ah. still well, very rare people that likes walking into a store, spending three hours reading stuff, and then I actually buy something. So I treat it partly as a library and partly as a as a store. I met him a couple of times at conferences, and by met, I mean, you know, I stood there, looked at some of his books, chatted amiably with him for a couple of minutes, and then wandered off. Uh, um, seemed like a nice fellow. But he's, yeah. you know, he's one of those, or he was one of those relics of a bygone age whose yeah. time had passed, where you could order books online. Not, what am I saying? Not online. You'd order them through um, newsletters, and uh, you'd get these little I hesitate to call them catalogs, but or you just meet them at a conference, you know, the old conference circuit thing, which doesn't really exist the way it used to. No. And then, and you know, he'd line up all of these books in much the same way that Tim Crawford now lines up all these videos. Yes. And you know, you could just kind of go, oh, I like that one and that one. And you know, his modern equivalent is Tim Crawford of UFO TV, because you can go to Crawford's display at any conference, and Tim, you know, will amiably chat with you about this or some obscure video you've never heard of. Yeah. And he'll know everything about it, and you know you'll get the only difference between Gerard and Tim is Tim will never give anyone a bad review. <laughs> Every film I sell is brilliant, yes. but you know, but it's that same idea—a nice enough fellow that you can talk about who's who's trying to sell you something. And um, you know, there's not very many of those people left uh, outside of the internet world. So his passing. Um, even though I didn't know him really, uh, it is symbolic to me of sort of the ongoing passing of a different era. And, yeah. you know, the, we're, we started seeing it with people like Dick Hall, and it's just continuing with people like Bob Gerard and Bud Hopkins. And, you know, there's going to be an awful lot more of them over the next 10 years. And yeah. that will be the end of the sort of golden, sort of the silver and golden age of, of UFO or paranormal culture, subculture research, whatever you want to call it. And we're in the middle of it right now. And Bob Gerard, Jim Mosley is another example. I mean, I hate to have a death watch, but these are people in their 70s and 80s now. And they were giants within the subculture of the UFO world. In a way, Gerard wasn't one of them, but he was part of that scene. In a way that, you know, we just don't have those giants anymore. You know, people like Nick, Nick writes a lot of books. He's reasonably well-known. But, and I mean no offense to you, Nick, but you don't have the cultural impact of somebody like Bud Hopkins or or going way back, you know, Adamski, Kehoe, Friedman, those guys. That was a different generation. Because and and I think, you know, as that's passing away from us, we're entering into a different a different kind of world. Yeah. Maybe a better one. Maybe maybe not a better one. I don't know. But it's not just happening it's not just happening in ufology. It's happening everywhere Mm -hmm. in society. So it's it's not something that's unique to the UFO or paranormal world. No, not at all. No, I, I actually agree with you, and I don't take offense at that at all. I, I agree with you that, you know, you can go back, you know, so that the ufological giants of the 50s, like Donald Kehoe, you know, and the Lorenzans, and, you know, Hynek, and people yeah, like Heineck that, and, yeah. where they were really giants of the subject, rather than people who are fairly well-known in the subject. And, you know, Stan... 
um, Bud Hopkins, Jacobs, you, John Mack, yeah, Jerry Clark, all these people, yeah. they've they've sort of gathered and garnered this position where you know they are the legends of the subject, and I don't think there's enough interest in the subject. There's an interest in the subject, don't get me wrong, but I don't think it's of such a scale where it's going to create legends 30 years from now when yeah. we're all sort of 60s, 70s, whatever. I yeah, don't it's going to be like um, more like... Uh, I, when you said that, I just flashed on... You know how people in Japan are really into really strange cultural things from the United States that are mm -hmm. so obscure that most people in the United States don't even know about them or mm -hmm. care? Or Britain or some other place. And they will travel thousands of miles to a pilgrimage to some dumb place where some <laughs> totally unknown person did something. Right. I think that's how it's going to be with, with UFOs and paranormal stuff. Yeah. And, and it probably it's turning that way right now. Where there's like fanatical followings of people in very narrow, mm -hmm. narrow de narrowly defined areas. Uh, when I went to look for the Adamski uh, place where he used to live at mm -hmm. uh, Oak Knoll next to Palomar Mountain... The guy that ran the place found um, a rusty old sign that actually said, uh, what did it say? It said Palomar something or other, but it was the sign that was up there when Adamski mm -hmm. lived there. And I had, to, I had to make an effort to find the place. I mean, mm -hmm. I looked up addresses, and I was like, finally, oh, this place. So I went there, and I, the guy had just bought the place like the year before, mm -hmm. and he was just discovering all this stuff. And he said, a few months after I bought the place, I had just discovered that Adamski had lived here. This busload of Japanese tourists came. Mm -hmm. They were looking for the place where Adamski used to live. They took pictures, asked me all these questions. They wanted to see his observatory. They knew way more about it than I did, and I owned the place. So that's how I feel, you know, based on what you and Paul just said. That's, that's, that maybe that's where um, ufology and pop culture, well, I guess, is heading. Everything is, there's just so much communication, and it's so easy to get information that just by the nature of the media, it's hard to become a giant, no matter what your ideas or your influence is, I think. It's well, much harder. Yeah. I mean, uh, for me, you know, the, the, if you can get the information out there and share it, and, you know, there's still a community, that's a good thing. But you're right, the, 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 the method of the information, you know, 30 years ago, and 10 years ago even, the way you would get the data, you would go along to a big conference, there'd be 500 people, and there'd be all these legendary figures on stage. Right. Today, you just don't need that. No. You know, you can. I can put out a, a latest story as a, you know, on a blog or whatever, or on Facebook or Twitter, the link or or anything. Now, that's in many respects that's better because it's instant information. But what it doesn't require is a thousand people to come along and hear you speak because they can get it online. Yeah. So by default, this mystique of these people like rock stars turning up at a gig playing the show, yeah. leaving town and going on to the next one, that's gone. It doesn't exist, yeah. no. Or it's going, anyway. Well, I'm not sure it's just that, although that's part of it, but it's the way that culture and communication has changed, particularly in the United States, but in the Western world in general. 30 years ago, or 40 years ago, when you had guys like Heineck and Stan Friedman and um, even Kehoe towards the end, these are guys who could sit down on one of the three networks. I wouldn't even say major networks because there were only three networks, period. Yep. And so you could have Mike, uh, Mike Wallace interviewing Donald Kehoe. You could have Stan Friedman be on a mate like ABC News Nightline or something. When, <laughs> the Armstrong the Circle television when the television industry fractured and the three networks were 
you know, Fox joined them, and then suddenly there's a specialty channel for everything. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, it's good in one sense, in that everybody sort of knows where to find stuff. But it's bad, and the Internet's been like this as well. It's bad in another sense, because you stop looking in other places. So the UFO stuff has been, you know, sort of subcultured down into the sci-fi channel, and occasionally the History Channel. You'll see UFO stuff on the History Channel, of course. Yeah. But that's about, that's about it. And you don't really see, um, other than the odd Larry King special that he used to have, because he had an interest, you yeah. don't really see any talk on ABC, NBC, CBS, or Fox about UFOs. Yeah, not and since that big NBC special. And they have a much larger audience. So Stan could be a guest, or even Nick, you could be a guest on a documentary on sci-fi, and I don't know, maybe a million or two million people will see it, who knows. But if you had been, as Keogh and Stan and Heineck were, a guest with Mike Wallace on a mainstream network interview show, millions upon millions of people would have seen it. Yeah. So it's sort of a reductionist approach that's happening across culture um, for everything, you know, for sports. Like, I'm watching the baseball playoffs right now. It's on TBS. You know, I only get it because they're putting it on a Canadian sports channel. Yeah. But it's the baseball playoffs, until you hit the World Series, by and large, are not on one of the major networks. And that is a radical change from 25 or 30 years ago. So it's happening everywhere, but it's really having an impact on these sort of subculture things like yeah. ufology. Yeah. And we, I do, you'll, you will never see someone like Stan Friedman again with that kind of cultural impact, unless the aliens actually land and then all bets are off. But you will never see somebody like Stan Friedman again. Frankly, you'll never see somebody like Carl Sagan again. I mean, everyone talks about Michio Kaku, but he, yeah. he has nowhere near the pop culture penetration that Carl Sagan had. No, yeah, that's why I said it's the nature of the media and how it's changed over the last 20 or 30 years. And pa Paul, yeah. as is wont to do, explained it very concisely and clearly. <laughs> well, it is what I do for a living, so it's the one thing I know, sort of. Sort of. You, uh, both of you kind of leapfrogged. Uh, the only other person I could think of uh, this year, only other, geez, what, four people now, is uh, Bud Hopkins. And I had um, Peter Robbins on a couple weeks ago and talked about Bud Hopkins. And I specifically, because Peter worked with him for over 20 years um, and, and supported the whole Hopkins abduction uh, uh, theory uh, right down the line. Um, I said, why, Peter? Why do you think all of this is happening in an objective reality? And he said, because I worked with Bud for 20 years, over 20 years, and this is what I experienced. I experienced it myself. I talked to people that experienced it. I thought we put in every check and balance I thought we could. You know, all the stuff that you you hear leveled at Hopkins, he said, well, it's from my point of view, and I, I trust Peter's judgment. Um. He said that uh, that he didn't see any problem really, with uh, except very small ones and minor ones that had people blown up, as to uh, to his methodology. I see, I saw a lot bigger problems with his methodology than Peter did. But the but the funny thing is, at the end of the day, after I talked to him after the show, after he told me what his point of view was, I I said, you know what, Peter, fair enough. If I had been working with Bud Hopkins for that long, I might share your opinion and not and not the agnosticism that I have. And he he was fine with that. But uh, you know, the, the uh, you know Hopkins is one of those last giants we were talking about, and the fact remains he re influenced very heavily a whole generation and pop cultures thinking about what UFO or at least alien or whatever you want to call it the abduction scenario is phenomenon is 
was was based on his research and his point of view on it, for better or worse. Which is why you know I didn't agree with him. But when he died, I said you know a giant has left us, and you know I have respect for his work and all that. I just didn't happen to agree with him. That's all. Um, and you know I. As a person, I'm sorry he's not here. And uh, as for his work, I wish he could have gone further or seen if he could have evolved his ideas. I, you know, that's not going to happen now, but maybe another generation will do that. Part of the reason why I was calling for no more abduction research for about, like, 10 years, except for support groups. I, I think that would be a good idea. Um, either of you have interaction with Hopkins at all, or are you, Walter? No. Huh? Um, only to sort of run into him at conferences. The last... I've Probably yeah, me too. I didn't run say into that. him yeah. and just have brief conversations at conferences. The most recent one was the um, the Monster Mash in. Um, he was at that. Yeah, that yeah. Um, that Tim Benol helps yeah, work yeah. on in uh, in um, Boston, uh-huh. and they, they have like a UFO theme night and a paranormal theme night as well. And Bud was at one of those, and you know I would I would agree, you know Bud's research, you know when the whole history of alien abduction law is told, you know, 30, 40, 50 years down the line, there's absolutely, I think there'll be three key issues that will really be seen as moulding the abduction scenario. One would be the publication of The Interrupted Journey, John Fuller's book in the 60s. Right. Certainly Bud's research with stuff like Missing Time which re-emphasized and, and took further this whole angle of, like, genetic experimentation. and I think know. that's where it started, actually. Yeah, yeah. But then I think the third one will be sort of Whitley Strieber's stuff. Ah, yes. Yeah. That really kind of took it down another path where the so-called visitors, even if there is sort of a nuts and bolts angle to it, you know, it goes far beyond that. You know, he talks about links between these entities and life after death and the realm of the dead and, you know, things like this. Um, I think the biggest problem I have with abductions is that uh, the problem I have with so many aspects of the UFO phenomenon, not that the phenomenon doesn't exist, I think it does, but it's like, this is the hybrid guy, this is the guy who thinks it's connected with life after death, this is the one who thinks it's alien doctors trying to save their dying race. Yeah. And the problem is, it becomes polarized. And I just wish the big names in abduction work would say, well, something's going on. Let's yeah. just pull all the data. Let's not be the one who thinks it's this or that. And yeah. then just let's see where it all leads. And right, right. Unfortunately, you don't get that. I think um, <clears throat> what you're talking about, the compartmentalization is a reflection of where American society is right now. We've been conditioned to be a society um, of experts and specialists. And um, the result of that is to get us to not think just like regular folks and put the pieces together. If you're not the expert or the pedigreed specialist, then your opinion on something is invalid. we got to hear what the... This guy's the expert on this, so his opinion is the one that counts, and all the other voices are silenced. And it's a way to keep people from even trying to put the pieces together. Yeah, but also what Nick was talking about was that there were three or four recognized experts, and two of them agreed on one side, two of them agreed on the other side. One was kind of an outlier. And it's if this is all the same thing, why are they telling us almost radically different stories about what it is? 
Um, and then, then, like you said, there's a, there's a compartmentalization of it just because that's how people are used to doing things. Okay, this is what it is, so that's what I'm going to follow. Well, well I, of- I think the compartmentalization um, was, is a product of an agenda. You know, let's get everybody thinking in the culture that, well, this guy's the expert on this, this guy's the expert on that. Right. And, um, and there was a trickle down to ufology because of it. Yeah. And, I don't and, think it was planned amongst anybody, amongst UFO researchers, that, that was going to oh, be. Oh, no, 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 no. What I'm saying is the people that know the truth ostensibly right. are the ones that would be, if this is true, behind such an agenda. It's, right. you know, keep anybody from figuring it out. We don't, see, they don't want us, whoever it is that knows what the truth is. They don't want us coming up with a unified theory. They don't want that because, uh-oh, if we do that, we'll see how things are linked and then, and then we'll figure it out. Right. But, uh, anyway, that's my two cents on, on this whole thing about the compartmentalization. Right. There's, uh, the only, my only disagreement with Walter is I don't think there's anybody, with regards to abductions, I don't think there's anybody in power or somewhere that does know what's going on. I think they're just as undecided about, they may have a certain idea which may be different from these all these public researchers, but I don't think they know for sure either. Well, that, I don't think there's any way for them to know for sure. That's making the assumption that it is some otherworldly answer. The abduction thing oh, could still you, be a I very mean, earthly yeah. thing, and oh yeah, 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 they would be the people behind it. Oh, I, and, I'm not. Yeah, you know. I'm not compartmentalizing it to aliens or underground dwellers or you know, it is something that's definitely a, a, an issue. One person that listened to Peter's uh, interview, they, they said something which I had forgotten, which I should have made a point of during the episode, talking to Peter, was that Hopkins and Jacobs um, were, you know, stealing the genetics stuff, e- evil aliens, they're here to, to uh, mess with our DNA and don't, want to, don't care about us at all. And then you have people like Leo Sprinkle and John Mack, which have the positive, they're here to help us along, you know, um, almost a space brother kind of thing. And then, you know, there's various outliers that are, are sure that it's all military abductions done by the government. And it's, it's, it's all, you know, wh- wh- where, where is the answer here? I, I think that it's very obvious that the answer is in the, the person working themselves into a corner and then the researcher working themselves into a corner and then only looking for certain kinds of uh, evidence. Peter disagreed with it. He said that they, they looked for, they, they tried to double-check everything that they did. And I wasn't there, so I don't know how they double-checked it. I, I really don't. But it's still, the question still remains that why did these other people absolutely so sure that it was positive and um, a lot other people were absolutely so sure that it was negative. And there was, there was no real middle ground. Well, what, one thing I would say on that is, and I would, I would base this on my experience, is that you know a lot of my views on things like UFOs, you know, veer away from the nuts and bolts angle in the same way that I think there's something weird about Bigfoot that, you know, that yeah, it's clearly not it's, flesh and blood, yeah. it's so Ill- elusive. It never gets hit by a car, it never gets hit, dies in the woods and gets found, etc. And, you know, they're seen near large cities and yet we're expected to believe whole colonies of eight foot tall apes can survive and never get caught yeah. now that doesn't negate the fact that there's a real possibility in my mind but what i think happens is you know with the, with the whole thing and the, the parallel i'm trying to draw is that the, the thing with people like bud hopkins or john mack or whoever i think to an extent people who've had an experience that has this high strangeness aspect to it or that one gravitate towards the researchers who they think are going to be more sympathetic 
to listen. In other words... I see what you mean. It's, it's, it's self-perpetuating even before it gets yeah, to them. Yeah, I get a lot of reports from people who have had Bigfoot experiences where they're driving down the road and the headlights have failed on the car and suddenly this weird thing shambles across the road. Right. But, but other not a UFO. But other researchers who've had more of a flesh and blood approach to it, they're the ones who probably get approached more by someone who just says they saw Bigfoot roaming through the woods. I think sometimes research um, witnesses filter out right. the sort of person they're going to approach. Yeah, it's, it's pre-filtered. And the other thing is if they go to the person and they're not hearing what they want, they'll go on to the next one. Like Bud Hopkins, they'll go to Bud Hopkins and he'll say, oh, this is horrible. And they're like, no, I want it to be a nice thing. Oh, have you heard of, you know, have you heard of John Mack? Or have you, heard, have you talked to Leo Sprinkle? Or, or maybe even Barbara Lamb. I think she's kind of on the positive alien side, too. <laughs> Uh, we have we we have not given any time to uh, Paul uh, with his thoughts about Bud Hopkins. Well, that's probably best. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I I hear from people who know him that he was a very nice man, and I met him once or twice at conferences, and he seemed genial enough. Although um, he he always seemed pretty comfortable having a crowd of followers around him, but you know there are an awful lot of people who you could say that about. Probably me too. So there you go. Um, it's sad when anybody who's not a mass murderer dies. He, he, was, a, he was a nice... <laughs> and that's the only thing, good thing I can say about him. Other than, I guess he was a competent and, and reasonably well-regarded artist. But here's yeah. my confident prediction. In 20 years, nobody will remember him. His uh, work on the abduction enigma will at best be consigned to the you know $1 book bins and footnotes in histories of the culture of the tw late 20th century, and I think there is a place for it there. Um, but in terms of the, you know, the sort of efficacy of his work, I think it's non-existent. In terms of the damage, and I've written about this, that he did to people who I think, leaving aside what you might or might not think the abduction enigma is, and I don't rule out the possibility that there might be some what we would call paranormal aspect to it. So leave that aside. But the damage that he did and that David Jacobs did and that other people did by creating this alien abduction meme, by hypnotizing people, by planting stories, and I'm absolutely convinced that's what they've done. Peter Robbins is a nice guy. I have met Peter. I do know Peter. And I know he means well. But when you've when you've been with a guy for 20 years like he has, that's kind of like asking a Catholic priest what he thinks of the Pope. Um, generally speaking, you're not going to get an objective answer. And I think that's what the role that Peter... I think Jeremy Vaney wrote something along these lines. That is the role that Peter has been playing for Bud Hopkins since Bud's death. And it's that... How do you... For anyone who's familiar with the David Jacobs saga for the last year and a half with Emma Woods, where he's planting... His, you know, he's telling her under hypnosis that she needs to buy a chastity belt to keep the aliens away from her. You know, when you hear something like that, and Hopkins was familiar with it, he would go on radio shows, including the Paracast, where Kevin Randall was a guest host. Neither one of them, by the way, would appear with me. So they're, you know, for, for people who are interested in honest discourse, both Hopkins and Jacobs, uh, there's a reason I stepped away from that particular episode when I was still co-hosting. Gene had asked me, and to Gene's credit, I've been very critical of Gene lately, um, again, I think validly. But at the time, to Gene's credit, he was going to pull the show. He said, I'm not going to let these guys dictate to me who my co-host is going to be. And I said, no, I think it's important, Gene, that you get them on the record. You'll have Kevin Randall there as the voice of reason. Fine. No problem. 
But there's David Jacobs defending his work with Emma Woods. You can listen to the tapes on the Paratopia podcast or anywhere else. And Bud Hopkins, not only does he not say a word um, in criticism, he supports Jacobs. He continues to support Jacobs. And you know what? If, if you're in that boat, whatever you think about abduction research, if you're in that boat where you support the work of Hopkins and Jacobs and these people who go around hypnotizing people and trying to recover memories, and anybody who knows anything about hypnosis knows that hypnosis is a useful tool for behavior modification. It is a lousy tool for memory recovery. And all you have to do is look at the sexual abuse scandals of 15, 20 years ago and the false claims, you know, it's like the Salem witch trials, where memories were allegedly recovered from the people who claimed that they'd been sexually abused, and the whole thing was a house of cards that fell apart. Well, that's exactly what the alien abduction thing is. Those people have been doing, too. And I don't exempt John Mack from that uh, either. You know, these people have been playing fast and loose for many years with the inside of people's minds, and I think, leaving aside the question of Bud Hopkins is a nice person and you hate to see anybody, I would have preferred he just retired and shut up. But this has had the same effect. And so in terms of dealing with the abduction enigma, I think it's a good thing. In terms of Bud Hopkins as a person, obviously it's a bad thing. So that you asked. That's my opinion. Um, I think he was a, you know, a dangerous man. And I think the authorities should have investigated these people a long time ago for what they were doing to people that, in many cases, not all cases, but in many cases, really probably did need psychological help. And they weren't getting it. What they were getting were people who were reinforcing fantasies or, or whatever it is that these people had going on, or in fact creating those fantasies within their own minds. And from the UFO perspective, here's my final word, leaving all that aside, if all you really care about is the UFO enigma, then they're just as bad, because by creating this entire house of cards, they have undermined the credibility of UFO research, they have created this narrative that has taken UFO research off into this this alley, this compartmentalized alley, and as a result, people who have different voices, who might have different ideas about what this is about, Greg, like you and I, when we talk about maybe it's some advanced consciousness from another dimension or something trying to make contact with us in our, our dreams or whatever, well, there's no place for that, really, because the entire oxygen was sucked out by this alien abduction need. So, yeah, you know, good riddance in terms of his work. As a person, obviously sad that he's passed away. And, you know, but he was 80 years old. He lived a good life. And, and by all accounts, a very interesting life, too. It's just a shame that the last 30 years of it was spent doing something that, you know, nobody's really going to remember outside of a very small group of people and the damage that he did. So there you go. There's my <laughs> two cents worth. Well, it's... Uh as far as I can tell, what you, what you said is valid. I don't I don't know if I totally agree with all of it, especially about the dangerous part. Uh, but we can we we can debate that at at another point. Um, maybe there's things that I don't know that I should. Um, as far as being remembered, I think it depends on what happens in the future. If there if somebody makes a bigger splash or finds out what it is or the or the um, the subject peters out, nothing happens. No, nothing, nobody will remember anything that he said. Um, especially if somebody else finds something out or the, the enigma is cracked somehow. Um, and if we, uh, I'll rephrase, if we never find out what it is, at least in our lifetimes, I think you'll be remembered because that's all, and those other people we're talking about, because that's all people have to hook on to. Unfortunately, I did bring this up with Peter. I said, people used to write me 
at the magazine and said, I think I've been having some kind of weird experiences that seem like uh, an alien abduction. Or they'd say, I've been abducted and I don't know what to do. I don't know why they'd write to me. But they write to me, and I told this to Peter, I said, I told them to go see a, a mental health professional that they trust and to stay away from UFO researchers. And strangely enough, Peter said, that's exactly what you should have told them. So well, then I, why, do they, why, why do they wind up with Bud Hopkins then, and how can Peter defend? Well, what? The well, I think Peter, defended it, because, hmm? Peter defended it because he thought that the people they got which he said they screened, I guess, somehow, to, to weed out wackos, in, in, in his opinion, in, in Hopkins' opinion, that um, when they got to them, they, they had not found some mental health professional that, that's, that could help them or they thought could help them or was making any progress. Uh, that, that's, from his point of view, that's what was going on. But that, that's always been my uh, idea about abductions for the longest time, especially for about five years after I read um, all the books by these people we've been talking about. And I don't know where it's going to go, and I don't know if these people could have been helped by going somewhere else. I do not know. Especially for somebody that's... Because uh, they go to a mental health professional, and they've got a whole other set of um, way to explain it that may or may not be helpful. I do not know. Um, but going to somebody who is not trained, as you said, is... is um, yeah, I think I agree with this, is, is most likely worse. Um, and I don't know what's going to happen in the future. I hope that more people that are serious about their profession address the subject and listen to the people. And if they want to say it's aliens and all that, and they say, well, you're not helping me, I want to hear the alien thing, and they leave, then that's their fault, isn't it? Well, the one thing I would add to that is I think why abductions are so controversial is because... More, probably more than any other aspect of the subject, it's the one aspect that interacts so intimately with the witness. You know, it's just one thing to see a UFO in the sky or a landing, but the whole abduction scenario is so intimate. And I, and I totally agree with Paul. I think, you know, it, it's, it's dangerous when whole scenarios are created and certain researchers are saying this is what's going on and they're 100% sure and this, like Paul said, it becomes like a meme it becomes perpetuated to where it becomes accepted now, to me, that is dangerous you know, because whatever, I'd be more satisfied to have less potential theories and answers in the abduction research field but to have more people looking at it with totally open minds addressing every angle. Right. You know, it's like, it's like you have the skeptics saying it's sleep paralysis or it's night terrors, you know. Which you, does not explain everything. No, it doesn't. But equally, there are people who will say it's just nuts and bolts aliens. There are other people like Whitley Strieber who've talked about, you know, these things somehow negotiating the difference between a physical realm and, you know, the realm of the afterlife. They seem right. to have some of the knowledge of it. Now, my view is that the UFO abduction community should be open-minded and look at all these issues and be the first to admit we do not really know what the answer is, but these are the theories and this is the data. When you start convincing the witnesses that, oh, they're coming to take your DNA, you're actually putting that witness in a very dangerous and precarious position, you know, where they become... You know, they they rely on the ex on the investigator. They trust them, 
And yet at the end of the day, it's a theory and a belief system. What an honest and a responsible abduction researcher should say to these people is, these are the different theories, these are the ideas, I can give you advice. Yeah. You know, the worst thing they can do is try and bolster their own belief system to sell books or to promote that scenario. And, and that's, you get that in abduction Even research. Even if they don't think they're doing it. Yeah, and that's, that's what you get in your abduction research, and that's, that is dangerous. That's the best way I can word it. It's dangerous. Well, I think what you have to do is, and I'm going to sort of allow me to do this here, this maybe take about two minutes. Go ahead. I think you kind of have to distill it down to your own fictional universe, like create a story about it. So I like to imagine a planet out there somewhere, let's call it Zeta Reticuli, because that's allegedly where the hills abductees or abductors were from. So you've got these alien beings sitting on Zeta Reticuli. Call them Zorg and Zang. And so Zang says to Zorg, hey, I think we should hop in one of our spaceships, which is incredibly advanced. I mean, we can travel between planets. And let's, and do you know how far that is? Yeah, that's pretty far. And let's travel to this little planet called Earth out in the galactic boondocks. And let's Let's just check out the natives. And Zorg, I think I'm on Zorg now. Zorg says, yeah, hey, that's a great idea. I mean, let's, let's do it. Come on. Um, but, you know, it's going to be a bit of a long trip and everything. And, and if we bring the natives up, um, we don't want them to know about us for whatever reason. Let's say they have a prime directive. And Zhang says, yeah, that's good. But remember now, we're an advanced alien species to them that can travel between the stars. Most of them have trouble traveling between the grocery store and their home without getting in a car accident. So... We clearly must have the technology. Let's, let's call Bob in um, advanced technology and see what he's got. Bob goes, yeah, of course, I can wipe their memories out. You can take them up, do all sorts of stuff. We'll use our advanced technology, which, again, allows us to travel between the stars, and we'll wipe their memory. Oh, okay, yeah, and they won't be able to counter that? Clearly not, obviously not. So they get to the planet, they abduct some people, maybe they abduct a lot of people. And unbeknownst to them, how could they have ever thought about it? A history professor, an associate professor of history at Temple University, and an artist in New York City managed to figure out a way to undo the advanced technology that Bob in the alien technology department cooked up for these guys who can fly between the stars. Now, you can believe that aliens are coming to Earth and abducting human beings. And I think, as Carl Flock said to me once, look, if you actually believe aliens have come to Earth, it stands to reason that they might have taken a few samples, you know, the same way that the European explorers took some Native Americans, although they took them all the way back to England. But, you know, at least they would make contact. So maybe that's possible. But what is impossible to believe for me is that these beings, with this kind of advanced technology that would allow them to fly between the stars, Zorg and Zhang and Bob, could you know, wipe our minds, but somehow using hypnosis, which everybody on our own planet, you know, who's a responsible adult says, is not a tool for memory recovery. It's why you can't use it in criminal courts, for instance. You can't use testimony elicited through hypnosis, because the criminal courts have said, no, of course not, it's not reliable. We somehow managed to figure it out, and not even our brightest scientific minds figured it out, but David Jacobs, Bud Hopkins, Leo Sprinkle, and John Mack, I'll throw them in, too. Uh, I, you know, folks just need to think about that for a second, and I think that puts the modern abduction meme into perspective. It does for me, anyway. And then, once you've done that, or once I've done that, by putting it into its proper perspective and allowing me to just push it aside and say, this is ridiculous, it opens up so many more possibilities 
for what might really be happening. And I think most abduction cases can be explained, sleep paralysis and a whole bunch of other things. But I still think that there is this residue of cases, um, for anybody that's inclined to dismiss me as a disbeliever, there's still a residue of genuinely weird cases, and they've existed throughout human history, too, in different forms, that I think might be an indication of some sort of advanced non-human intelligence interacting with us and how they do it. Um, is a much more interesting thing than Bob, Zhang, and Zord flying from Zeta Reticuli and kidnapping us in our sleep. Thus uh, ended my story. Uh, thus, um, I 100% down the line agree with you. And it's also why, um, just a little while ago, and in a speech where, which was not well received, I said, drop abduction research for probably 10 years except for trying to help people out that said that they've that this has happened to them and seeing it you know seeing how we can get them to uh, get through it without saying that they've been abducted by aliens unless they want to think that that's fine uh, i don't know if you can dis you know uh disabuse people of that idea that want to hold on to it but um i think that if every preconception and nick has suggested this too is dropped and it is looked at, if it can be, in a new way or complete, without blinders on and without uh, preconception, see what happens. Yes, Paul, it's been going on for centuries. No, and I should have brought this up with Peter. I guess it was a bigger question that I did not think about was, um, you know, how many samples do you need? How many hybrid babies do you need? We only need one or two. Why do they need thousands, hundreds of thousands? You, you, they, these have got to be pretty stupid aliens. Different systems, different planets, different races. Yeah, and, you know, why does our DNA match up? Is it the same everywhere in the galaxy? There's way too many questions, so there, there's got to be something. And a lot of people come to the same conclusion that Paul has and Nick has and I have and other people have, that there's got to be something else going on, and it's got to be probably far more complicated than aliens coming from other planets. And, on the, and, and on, finally, to cap it all, something I've been pushing for a long time now, um, we're really, really ignorant of our contribution to the to the uh, idea, to alien abductions, to UFOs, to a lot of these things. Really, really ignorant of our subconscious co uh, contribution, our ability to confabulate something that will make us feel better about whatever the experience was, and um, that it is routinely ignored in some kind of quest for some kind of understandable uh objective reality to it which i i think the objective reality is 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 in our heads somewhere uh 90 99% of it maybe not 99 but most of it's in our heads somewhere um and the 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 objective reality the the precipitating event is something that we i don't know if we can grasp it right as of right now and we use this convenient um, area in our subconscious and in our culture and in our cultural heritage and maybe even, even in our genetics to put it in this box. It's aliens from other planets. Um, I don't know, and, and the, I think therein is the, the problem. Our contribution, our... our it, it, does it make sense what I'm saying to you guys? Yeah, it does. I mean, the one thing I would add... It's really hard to see it because yeah. it's right in front. It's part of us. Yeah, I mean, the, the one thing that I, I would add is that, you know, there's clearly, whether it's internal, external, or somewhere in between, there is an abduction scenario where people, you know, have these experiences where they feel this force or presence in the room in the middle of the, middle of the night, and they're taken somewhere, 
and they interact with sort of higher entities and they come back kind of profoundly changed, you know, or traumatized or elevated combination. But the a lot of people assume we've proved it's aliens. We haven't. What we've done, we've got a lot of information and our cultural times and place of reference have assumed it's aliens. You know, it's like people like Jack Vallée pointed out, you can go back 500 years, say, to Europe, England, and find stories where somebody would go into the woods, get disorientated, they see these fairy lights, they'd be taken to the fairy kingdom where they mate with the fairy queen. You know, you have, so you have the, you have the kind of um, genetic link there. Yeah. And then they come back, and they thought they were gone for two hours, and two days have gone by. So you've got kind of like a missing time or extra time angle. Now, back then, they earnestly believed they were dealing with goblins, pixies, gnomes, fairies. We believe we're dealing with aliens. And I think one of the reasons why the mystery hasn't been resolved is because instead of just looking at the data, we're just trying to reinforce the theory that's in vogue in that era. And that's the, the exact thing, opposite thing to what you should be doing. Yeah, I 100% agree with Nick. And um, Paul, did you say your piece? Yeah, no, I'm I'm good. I'm done. Um, okay. Yeah. Do we want to drop the abduction thing right now <laughs> and move on? What? I I did not make a list of uh, and, you know, one thing. One other thing, if people want to, and I think Valet did recognize this and reference this, is read Fairy Faith in the Celtic Countries. If you want to read a good book about abductions. Yes, yeah, Evans Walter Yeeling Evans Wentz. It was written. Book. It was written in the uh, teens, I believe, or maybe like even before nineteen ten, nineteen ten, nineteen oh eight, something. Yeah, like that. he he went on a walking tour of the Celtic countries, meaning Ireland, Scotland, and Brittany, and uh, asked all the people that were around at the time what their ideas of the, what the fairy folk were and what that what their interactions were with people. Read that book. It's exactly, almost exactly what's going on in abductions. And then we didn't even get into the DMT stuff with Rick Strassman and all the abduction stuff that goes on in that in an altered state of mind lying on a table in a hospital. So I, The one thing I would say is let's stop calling it abductions, which yeah. is a loaded term that presuppo- presupposes that somebody's actually literally, you are literally being abducted. And instead, you know, let's call it uh, contact. You know, I know that brings up the contactee movement, which has a checkered past. But let's ignore the contactee movement, or let's view it within the sort of experiential well, yeah. time scale of human history. As despite all the hoaxers and fraudsters and everybody like Adamski, there were an awful lot of people during that period of time who claimed that something had contacted them. I'm not prepared to dismiss all of them just because some of the leaders of the movement, or even all of the leaders of the so-called movement, were fraudsters. Within, you know, I, I'm not a big fan. I'm not a big fan of the hierarchy of the Catholic Church, but I'm not prepared to dismiss um, the claimed experiences of people throughout human history. Um, say within the Catholic faith, uh, any other faith would do as well. Um, that might say, look, we had some sort of contact with uh, what they would call God, what we might call something else today. Yeah. So you can separate the two. And the, this, this is something, one thing I would say is let's call it contact or an experience, 
And I wrote about this. There's a guy I studied when I was doing my grad degree in history, which was on evangelical religious history. Mm-hmm. Um, Hen- Henry Allen, I've talked about this before, uh, one of the great religious figures in Canadian history, basically founded the Baptist Church in Canada, led a great spiritual awakening in the 1770s and 80s. But he claimed that he t- literally took a walk in the woods one day, was going through a profound crisis of faith, and he had a very existential, very strong experience. I mean, the, the physical experience he described as being ravished by the Spirit. Now, he filtered whatever happened to him. He filtered throughout the, through the prism of, of his culture, of how he'd been brought up, of the myths and legends or whatever that you want to look at it, of his time. So he put a religious spin on it. Today, if that happened to somebody, they might, if they're in Alabama, put a religious spin on it. But you know what? If they're sort of an agnostic living in northern Ontario somewhere, they might put a different spin on it. And it might Mm be alien abduction, or it might be who knows what it might be. But that kind of thing has been happening throughout human history. And, you know, we need to look at it and not call it abductions. I I think calling it contact or experience is a much more um, useful terminology to use. Yeah, probably. That's why. Go ahead. No, no, that was it. I was just going to say it's more reflective of what's actually yeah. potentially happening. Although people have been saying experiencer, which always irritated me because we're experiencing something all the time. Um, I've got a new, I got one for it. But use this one. It's too long though. A A N C, alleged anomalous non-human contact. <laughs> there you go. Amp. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I got to find something Onk. sexier than that. Onk. Onk. Are you good are, luck getting on the con- on this on the uh, symposium circuit with that? <laughs> Yes, that's all I'm interested. About, that's all I'm interested in. Yeah, alleged anomalous about, non-human oh, contact. They'll think you're talking about ancient Egyptian mythology or something. <laughs> no, it's totally different. Onk, totally different. Yeah. Well, it's the only thing I can think of that's is is, is uh, uh, idea neutral as much as can be with regards to what it might be. Neither believing nor not believing. That's the alleged part. And anomalous is certainly anomalous because it can't be asp- explained yet. Non-human. I am acknowledging personally my my. Uh, well, that's all. It's all alleged, but I'm acknowledging that there is a there is a non-human presence or intelligent, and definitely there's some kind of contact that's been going on for thousands of years. Am I supposed to lead the conversation in another uh, well, direction? Well, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's one of these things where, you know, I guess we we've kind got of, 45 we, minutes on yeah, abductions well, we've here. We've kind of exhausted already. it in the sense that we know something's going on, but it's almost like the worst thing to do to pigeonhole it into a particular belief system and promote that and somebody else to promote another. Because that, yeah, I'm that already really... presupposing it's non-human contact. Well, I know, not... but but then again, you know, it's like some people take the hybrid view. Some people say it's DNA to save an alien race. That's what Other said people alleged. say it's demonic. Somebody else says it's time travelers. With you know the futures, whatever. The problem is that at the end of the day, despite what despite what people think, we don't have answers, and it's just plain wrong to try and place these cases into a scenario that you just want to believe. That's, that, at the end of the day, in simplistic terms, that's what we need to get away from. We need to address the phenomenon, not try and push it into one angle that kind of sounds cool to us. Yeah. And that, that's what certain researchers mm-hmm. have done, I think. Yeah, I'll sort of shorten it to ACE, Alleged Contact Experience. There you go. <laughs> I don't know. I, I'm not happy with any of those. Nice. But it's it's um, 
I mean, I, I like my... Nobody seemed to like... When I said this at the conference at, uh, in New Mexico that I spoke at, this last one, which may have been the last one I'll speak at after that, I said, drop abduction research. I got these, I got these horrified looks from some people. And I know why they were the horrified looks because it means you mean you're we're not gonna we're not gonna retell our tales over and over and over again to make ourselves feel like there's something horrible going on. No. Sure. Well, it's like showing up at a Republican Party conference and saying we need to cut military spending. Oh, you know. come on now. <laughs> <laughs> That's it's like showing up at a group of true believers who you know you can't change their mind about anything and telling them, hey, maybe we should try doing something different. Well, well I, you know, when I gave that talk, I didn't really particularly care what people thought. I thought you, it's one of those things, Paul. You know, where like I'm sure you've done this and Nick done do this. You say what you want to say and hope that two or three people agree with you and that or some kind of debate, something useful is sparked by it. And if not, who gives who gives a crap? You know. Yeah, I mean, my my view, you know, I'll say what I think is going on. But I'm not dogmatic, and people say, "Oh, well, you're either sitting on the fence, or you're allowing yourself to." Oh, the next book, I'll do a different thing. No, it's not that. I'm being honest enough to admit that there's this is what there's a phenomenon. But if you ask me to promote myself as the person who thinks abductions are this or crop circles are yeah. that, I'm not. I'm just going to follow the evidence, and if things change over the years, my views are going to change, and what I published changes. Yeah, you know. But to uphold, come hell or high water, this scenario or that one, because that's the way you started out. To yeah. me, that, that, that's actually kind of almost like lacking self-confidence, that you don't feel the, you're able to admit that things have changed yeah. and you're moving on because some of your earlier views Yeah, we talked about this yeah. earlier, that if, if, you gotta, if you're so scared of what my opinion is and don't want me to express mm. it, well, how, how sure? it's a very old idea. How sure are you of yours? That, that's exactly what why it is. Why do you have to defend it if you know it to be true? And that's that there's exactly no, right. you know, You're totally right. Why do you have to convince me of something when, you know, is, is it bad if I don't believe what you believe? Yeah. Then there must be something wrong with what yeah. you believe. Because it's not helping you unless I agree with you. Has anybody in abduction research, because I admit I don't follow it closely, um, ever tried to so-called recreate the experiment? In other words, recreate the circumstances and conditions under which these things happen to either um, maybe hopefully witness, observe, or allow themselves to be kind of an explorer and be abducted themselves. Has anyone tried that? Or do they just keep hearing the stories and hypnotizing people to hear these stories? Yeah, I think it has been tried, but not in the detail you've... Uh, given us the thing is that you know how do you set something up like exactly. that? Exactly. How do you do it? But I was they've just tried to videotape things, it. but nothing ever gets picked up because. And I do believe this is because an anomalous part of it happening? because no, because um, cameras will shut off, and this it, happens. This happens in in UFO uh, sightings and ghost okay. things and all that too. It's this weird thing, and I, I don't think it's a hoax or anything like that. I think in a lot of cases, if something is going on, it affects electronic uh, recording devices and, and knocks them out, just like car engines are knocked out, and just like cameras, video recorders, mm. audio recorders, and all those don't seem to work in certain cases in mm. uh, paranormal uh, situation. Oz factor. But then, but then you would know, it has never been done, to my knowledge, this came up on a, a discussion forum that... I, I very occasionally participate in. I kind of stopped doing it. 
but doing my daily name search, you know, like, has anyone said anything bad about me today? Yeah. <laughs> uh, it, it popped up. They'd actually used my name in the thread title. It's a UFO Evolution, which is a pretty good board. So I showed up, and it was about alien abductions, some article that I had written a couple of years ago. And as, so I get into the conversation, and one of the things um, I said was, I think somebody asked me, they said, Paul, you're a filmmaker. Um, if you thought you were being abducted, would you set up cameras and try and capture the experience? And I said, well, duh, of course I would. And you know what, guys? It's not actually that hard to do. Ghost hunters, quote, quote, I use that term with small g, small h, not the TV series, but all these ghost hunting groups, most of them have the basic um, four or five camera setup, a DVR camera system that we used in ghost cases. I think it cost us about $2,000, which might seem like a lot of money, but if you're MUFON or one of these other groups like QFOS, it isn't. Um, so if you've got an abductee and you've, you've got what you think is a good, good, solid abductee account, they seem like credible people, whatever. Well, why, don't, why haven't they set up these, exper these experiments, put the cameras up, and one of the two things will happen. Either there will be no further abductions, or, and I think you're right, you won't actually catch aliens walking across the camera for the same reason that our hypnosis techniques aren't able to defeat their technology. But you will get, as Greg says, what often happens, not often, but what sometimes happens on these um, ghost investigations, where the batteries drain faster than they, they should have or normally would have, or the picture goes out altogether, something like that. And if you see gaps in the tape, for instance, that might be an indicator that something weird's going on. Um, so at least then you could say you've done it, at least then you could cross that off. And if I had to choose between setting up a camera system to monitor the bedroom or the house or whatever of an alleged abductee for a period of months, because you'd have to run this for a while, or bringing them into my office and hypnotizing them to recover memories, the first thing that I would have done would have been the camera system. And maybe if that didn't pan out after I tried about 80 other things, I don't know, maybe hypnosis, but probably not. It but, has been uh, done, Paul. Hmm? It has been done multiple times. People have um, set up cameras, sometimes over a period of months, and recorded every I'm, night. And then once in I'm, a while they'll say something has happened, and the, the camera shuts off, and they never get a picture. And I can't, I, you know... Are all these people lying about it? I don't think so. So there, I think there is something going on that is affecting the camera, just like you said. I'm not talking about people doing it to themselves, because you can't trust that. I don't care um, who they are or how credible they seem. I don't trust it. What you need is an independent, objective group or uh, observer, if you will, coming in and doing it. That is how science is done. That's right. how any evidence gathering is done. It doesn't even have to be science. You don't let the victims of crime conduct their own investigation. That's what the police department's for. So, you know, that, to my knowledge, has never been done by any of these alphabet soup organizations like MUFON. If it has, the results have certainly not been released um, because they would be much talked about and debated about by now. And, you know, the question sort of exists, why hasn't that been done? And I think it's probably because people are afraid of what the answer is going to be. Especially so, if the answer is that it's not happening. Hmm? Especially if the answer appears to be that it's not happening. Well, right. I, I, exactly. think, it's I think it is happening. Oh, yeah. But not in the way they think. Mm. Well, the other Sorry. thing I would add to that is that one of the reasons why I think some of these critical issues within ufology haven't been followed is because ufology has become less about an investigative issue and more about an industry. 
Yeah, it, you it, know, it, was out of, it turned into that quite a while back. Yeah, it's like, you know, the main thing is at a conference is to get people on seats, you know, and... I don't say Not at my to, conference it wasn't. Well, <laughs> or Stewart's actually. <laughs> I don't think it's a, I don't think it's a case of, you know, get get up people on seats, come hell or high water under whatever circumstances. But for a lot of people, it is a business, and if it's a business, it becomes a case of upholding issues that people think are going to sell and they're going to bring people in, and that sometimes I think can blur the line between legitimately researching something to try and resolve it or upholding a scenario that sounds exciting that's going to bring people in and to me that's that that's just wrong you know that yeah. so what well, if you put you know so what if you put an abduction conference on and three of the people say one person says it's all in the mind one says it's sleep paralysis one says it's sexual trauma as a child and only two people support the ufo angle yeah perfect. that that shouldn't matter but you will not get any conference organizer in the no. ufo field who will put a co an abduction conference on like that for one reason not because the theories might not be valid but because it's, it's not good money. for business yeah, yeah. and well, yeah it's a self it's a self-limiting prophecy though and you can see that in i mean it's not just the ufo field you can see that in anything and Take a look at anything that starts off in a revolutionary way. Um, let's take Christianity, for an example. So here's this guy 2,000 years ago, Jesus, who's going around saying a bunch of interesting things. Son of God, not son of God, who knows? But, you know, here's an interesting guy with a revolutionary mes message. Certainly at his times, I mean, the Romans definitely thought he was a revolutionary. The Jewish leaders thought he was a revolutionary, and both of them thought he was dangerous. Yeah. Well, okay. Within 300 years, which seems like a long time, but it isn't, that had become the dominant orthodoxy within the Roman Empire, to the mm -hmm. point where the Roman Empire was a Christian entity and the old gods were gone. Yeah. Because they've taken that revolutionary message, and we'll never know how much of that is actually accurate or not, although the Jesus Seminar has done a reasonably good analysis of the Bible, and what might be true and what might not be true. But anyway, they take this revolutionary message, they codify it, they make it socially acceptable, they mix it with other myths, you know, which, you know, the sun god and all that sort of stuff. Yep. And then they spit it out, and it bears very little relation to, A, who this guy was, or B, what he His was message saying. message was, yeah. And, you know, within the much smaller group of UFO research, as Nick indicates, and then you build a church around it, and the church has an interest in perpetuating itself and its stories, so it doesn't like dissent. It burns people at the stake if they say, hey, wait a minute, you know, I'm, I'm not actually sure that's what Jesus meant. Pew! And so, and it, it was money. That's where the Protestant Reformation came from. You know, people wanted to say the church is just taking our money and perpetuating it to itself. This is crazy. So, ufology, same thing. They created a church. They created the central mythology of the church, which is sort of aliens from Zeta Reticuli in all its facets. And, you know, you've got sort of the Protestant Reformation, which is Valley, and these other guys who've created a slightly um, less popular church. Uh, centered around the extra-dimensional stuff and all of that. But they're basically two narratives that are talking about the same thing, UFOs. And you're either in one camp or the other. They generally don't agree. They both run conferences, although the UFO is alien people run like 99 out of 100 conferences, and you might get one in the other group. 
but that's and and so it's just the last thirty years it's perpetuated itself it's reinforcing its own myths the same way that the Catholic Church did or the Protestant Church or you know the same way that any entity that forms out of a revolution you know the American government it's an imperial government now it's not a revolutionary government bears very little resemblance to what the founding fathers were talking about doing but that's that's just what happens with any revolutionary movement and I think within you know, it's much smaller world. The UFO study in the 40s and 50s was revolutionary. It was it was talking about something that was different. Um, the idea of contacting aliens from outer space or other intelligences and that sort of thing. And then slowly but surely, it got codified and changed into a religion. And there it sits. And we are, you know, sort of the apostates. People like us or Mac Tonys. Um, doesn't matter whether we're right or wrong. We're just saying something that doesn't fit with the prevailing dogma of the church. And so, yeah, we don't get invited to the conclaves. You know, it's like the cardinals are all hanging out. I don't get an invite. Nick does because they like him. But, um, you know, the rest of us, we don't get uh, we don't get invites. And sh- Nick, you know what? I'm sure you'd get more invites if you were, because you're a good speaker, if you were a little less, you know, body snatchers in the desert uh, kind of idea. Well, uh, be- well, that's probably true, but then it's kind of like, what am I supposed to do? Just kiss ass and say what people want to hear? You know, I'm not. No, going, I'm, with, uh, I'm with you. I'm, yeah, I'm no. just saying. Yeah, good for you. No, yeah, it's you being hypothetical while complimenting you on your uh, <laughs> okay. y- y- yeah. your methods. Yeah, I mean, I, I, my view is that you know, it's like when I did that book on the trail of the saucer spies. People were like, "Wow, yeah, the government's watching us." But one of the things I pointed out was that certain files that had surfaced through the British government, like on the Ethereum Society, the British police force's special branch have released their files on the Ethereum Society. That they've got an extensive file. And people said, oh, well, that proves the government's watching the Ethereum Society because of the UFO angle. They weren't. When you read the file, one of the big the mandates of the Ethereum Society was that they were vehemently against atomic weapons and Special Branch were concerned how many people were listening to the Ethereum Society uh, in England and getting behind this idea that, hey, yeah, atomic weapons aren't the best thing after all. Maybe we should disarm. So, in other words, this has nothing to do with UFOs. And when I wrote that book, some people said, oh, no, you know, you're just... You're just you're either being paid or you're hiding the fact that the government's watching us because of aliens. Maybe that's part of it. Maybe that really is part of it. But a significant part has to do with stuff that most people in ufology never think of. And yeah. you know, and I'm not going to apologise for the fact that I go to a conference and I might piss people off because I don't say what they want to hear. You know, but what am I to do? Just tell stories about angelic aliens are going to save the ozone layer and no it's just yeah i'm not saying it's bullshit that that might be going on but if i have no evidence of it i'm not going to uphold that so yeah you you if you're not saying what people want to hear they, they will often often get upset i i, I well, say fuck this them. yeah you know the subgenius thing you'll pay to know what you really think um and that goes on all the time um and who knows, the church, quote, quote, within going back to UFOs, now the church might be right, or they might be right about some things, but not all things. It's not a question of being right or wrong. It's a question of being, you know, willing Honest. to throw up somebody who disagrees with you and wants to examine it further. Yeah. And that's the problem. It's, it's not what they say. It's how they say it and how they react to other people who say different things. So it wasn't, 
you know, using the religious metaphor to stretch it to an event, it wasn't what the Catholic Church was saying that was wrong. It was what they were doing to everybody else who disagreed with them, burning them at the stake, you know, waging war against their countries and all that sort of stuff. So you can have your beliefs. You can even advocate for them, but allow other people to do the same. And as Nick indicated on the abduction thing, you know, it would be, I would have no interest personally in it, but, you know, if you had that kind of panel where you would have had somebody from all the different schools, including put Susan Clancy up there and let her talk, you know, that would be that would be much more interesting and probably much more productive. Yeah, to get uh, the, the what people are afraid of, and it's this, this old uh, mammalian politics thing of who can grunt the loudest and who has the most territory and all this, and it, it's, you know, you can get into the psychology of it. But that's what's going on, I think, in a lot. Of, you know, every area of intellectual and spiritual, unfortunately, uh, endeavor, human-wise, is that people, like you said, Paul, they will create a, a mythology and then they will defend it. And even if it gets to the point where it's undefendable in most people's view, they're still going to defend it and they're going to try to shut down anything that doesn't agree with it because they don't want to be proven wrong. And the problem is is open debate. And the problem is a, a, a open marketplace of ideas, and I don't think that's happened in a long time. And that's what that's you know that's why I like the internet, and I like the decentralization of it by having you know hundreds you know there's there's bad points about having hundreds of different viewpoints and hundreds of different radio shows. And I, but the good thing is that if you want a marketplace of ideas, you've got it there, and every once in a while you'll find something that's um, that's valuable to you. What's what's too bad is like what Walter said is you, and this is in politics too, and it's it's reinforced now. You have to have a certain idea and you have to stick to it, even to the point where you look completely stupid, and repeating yourself over and over when you look stupid just because you think that it's worse to make it look like you you had the wrong decision or you have to change your mind. Um, it's all. I, I, I don't know. I mean, it would be wonderful if the greater portion of the population would respect somebody for changing their mind instead of feeling like. The, the person is not reliable because they changed their mind. It's, it, it should show a, a you know a uh, a strength of conviction in your own intellect and the people who are listening to you to be able to change your mind. And I don't think that exists in any endeavor really too much. Maybe not even in science that much to to some extent because there's there's you know funding agencies and people standing in the academic community and a million other things that are going on. So you really have to get down to people's motivations for their belief system and and uh, how willing they are to play fast and loose with their 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 uh, what they're interested in how much uh, effort they're going to put into finding out if their position or somebody who they follows position is supportable perfect example of what you're saying in some aspects of this is Kennewick man I mean no sense whatsoever is Kennewick man. <laughs> it's um, the difference between being an adult and being a child, both as a civilization yes, and thank as you, Paul. Exactly. an individual. And, you know, there's one other death we should talk about, because I don't think we'll all probably be getting together, you know, any time again soon this month. And that is, it's almost two years since one of those guys oh, yes. who actually did think outside all of those boxes was willing to entertain any idea, reject some, keep some, change some in his own way you know, a real thinker um, and a searcher. And uh, that is, uh, of course, Mac Tonys, who passed away almost two years ago. I think it was October 19th, was it? Something yes. like it was mid-October. Mm -hmm. So, you know, um, another guy, the world, forget about the world, 
UFO research or paranormal research, there's very few guys like that. I'm talking to three of them right now, and you know, there's not very many more, which is why I don't talk to very many more of them. So, you know, like losing a guy like Mac or losing a guy like Stuart Miller, who had that same mindset, um, those are the guys that you really miss, and you will miss them more as the years go on when you realize that they're not part of the conversation anymore. And that's what you miss, having somebody to bounce those ideas off of. Yeah, Paul, uh, thank you for reminding us. Some would say that's um, to, uh, it's, I went to pick up Nick today, and right before I left the house, I looked on my desk, and the, uh, Max watch that his mother sent me was on the desk, and I put it on for the first time in months, I think. So I'm actually wearing it today. Oh, cool. You should walk by the little uh, store that had the, mannequin, the headless we, mannequin. We did. We did, and I thought of Mac when we did. I just didn't say anything to Nick. The uh, the uh, potentia sexual thing with the alien blue <laughs> blue lady, I don't think is out there anymore, though, out in the hallway. But, uh, yeah, we came in here, and, and Paul said, was Mac ever in here before we came on the air? And I said, yes, he was. That one time. Yeah, my, uh, uh, Nick asked me that when we came in. I said, yes, he was. The time when uh, Paul and, and, and Mac were on at the same time when you were out here shooting... Um, uh, best, best evidence. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah, that was fun. Um, not as much fun as the UFO death match, but still, um, that was... <laughs> that was that was pretty fun. Um, well, let's predict who's going to die next. No, I'm just kidding. Well, no. that. The Deadpool. That would be creepy and morbid. You know, guys, uh, I, I, I can't believe we've gone this whole night. You guys have neglected the issue of crop circles. What? I neglected every night. <laughs> what did we neglect? Sorry, I didn't hear that. Crop circles. The guy at the Ethereum Society brought him up. I He's absolutely sure there's uh, that aliens are doing it because it fits in with the Ethereum belief system. So what do you guys think? Are they all being done by um, um, the guys in England? or Nope. They're not all being done by humans. Well, but a lot of them probably I, mean, I actually know a lot. I have a lot of friends who make crop circles right. back in England. Now, people take... A lot of people say that people who make hop, you know, the human angle, these are hoaxes. And that term hoaxes, it's like Paul said, you know, the term abduction is an inflammatory term. Yeah. And hoaxer in terms of crop circles is, a lot of these people consider themselves like artists, like landscape artists. And certainly they should be. Yeah, exactly. But what's weird is that there are a number of people who've made crop circles who, if you get them to talk privately, will say they've had weird experiences in the formations they've made, like missing time, seeing strange balls of light hovering over them. Yeah. And I mean, a good friend of mine, Matthew Williams, is the first, first and actually, I think, ever only person in Britain ever to be arrested, charged, and convicted for making a crop circle. The charge was actually causing damage, criminal damage to a property, you know, a field. But Matthew has gone on the record as saying, yes, I made these formations, but he felt almost like channeled, like a contactee, channeled to make certain formations because it would provoke people to think about things. So in other words, he was being used as a vessel by some um, some higher intelligence. And he, he actually he believes... Thinks he, 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 he thinks he is. He thinks he is. Yeah, I mean, granted, he thinks he is. But he doesn't take... I didn't take, say he wasn't. No, I just said he thinks he yeah, is. Yeah, but he doesn't mm. take the view that he's a hoaxer. The hoaxing yeah. angle is really a creation of the media and the crop circle community who want to demonize the people who do this yeah. if they actually went out with these people like matthew 
Matthew goes out and kind of says like almost like a a Buddhist type prayer to kind of get good karma and in the making of the formation and that when people go into that field (laughs) afterwards they will get some sort of positive energy back that's why he does he doesn't Matthew has never gone out to say rubbed his hands together rubbed his hands together (laughs) I'm going to fuck with all these people who come on coach tours every year you know and make them think it's Matthew and a lot of the people who do it you know the hoaxing angle is about as far away from reality as you can get with the human crop circle well, I've, I've talked to people that specifically went out to do hoaxes with rubbing their hands mm-hmm. and going yeah and then found the same thing that matthew yeah. did that their weird things were happening to them yeah. in the circles and the funny thing is these people and I'll, I'll, mark pilkington he he absolutely believes that 100 percent of the circles are made by humans stomping them down with with boards but he also, for some reason, thinks that, because he's had personal experience, that there's, they call up some sort of force, whatever that might be, yeah. as, a, as a magical working almost. Well, it's almost. By, by, by the mere fact, yeah. an act of making the circles. I'd let, I'll let. Um, Look what Walter I'll did. I'll let Walter say right now. <laughs> the one thing I would add is that there's a lot to suggest with crop circles it's kind of like the even the things you like crowley like opening portals and doorways yeah. and inviting something in I it's like exactly that. like that yeah or jack parsons yeah. who we were I, talking about today at the yeah. devil's gate i was going to bring up the question of you know i here's here's where my mind how my mind went from a to z um i'm thinking well you know the, the guy who got arrested for damaging property has anyone ever thought of coming up with a crop circle park where people pay, it's maintained, <laughs> they grow the grass so that there's a legal place for people to go make these things? And then I thought, mm. well, I wonder if there's another uh, medium in which you could make these things. And I thought of what about dirt and such. Mm. And then that led to the Nazca lines. What if the mm. people who did the Nazca lines were merely doing mm-hmm. an ancient version of crop circles? Mm-hmm. Or you can... But the ancient that, alien people wouldn't like that. Yeah. Or or you stone even, circles. Yeah, or stone you can even draw... Very direct spiritual thing about um, moving earth and things around, and go to the Zen temples in Japan. Oh yeah, 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 exactly. Right, exactly. What's the purpose of doing those? It's not to hoax anybody. No, it's not to make every anybody say. You know, it's not. It's not to show off. You don't even know who rakes those things. No. It's just somebody in the te- anonymous temple person in the temple no. does it. Yeah. And how does it affect people? It affects all the people in different ways. And the people that make those rake those rocks around never really do it in the same way each mm-hmm. time. And they, they do it according to what they think is it's supposed to look like mm-hmm. that day. I mean it's it, it's a very it's a if you want to call it um, I don't think Zen is a spiritual thing. Mm-hmm. I think it's more of a philosophical thing, but you know what I mean. Yeah. But I think you can apply that same thing to to the crop circle thing in a Western way, in yeah. the way that Matt was talking about, yeah. or, 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 or uh, John John Lundberg and Mark Pilkington mm-hmm. and all those people that do the quote unquote hoaxing or yeah. do the crop circles as art. Yeah, I actually think, and I'll perhaps hand this over to Paul now. Is just I actually think Paul could be the best person because of his views on abductions and how we should approach it to do a perfect crop circle documentary that actually approaches the phenomenon in the way it should be approached that you know you speak to the true believers about aliens you speak to the people who believe the Gaia angle that it's the earth manifesting these things but you speak to the people who make them and who actually feel you know they're being wired with some message to make these things and you know you could get a great documentary they're all nuts 
Well, but that's part. That would be part of a great documentary. Yeah, people yeah, who say they are nuts. Yeah. But then you go out in the field with someone like Matthew, and you experience the weirdness. And you know, it's it's difficult to to dismiss it. So. That'll be episode eight of the Beyonders, season one. So Nick knows what I'm talking about, or he will once he reads his email. Um, yeah, you know, I like Walter's idea of setting up a theme park. The one problem I have, I view it as performance art too, um, leaving aside any paranormal angle. The only problem I would have with that is they are breaking the law. They are going, in many cases yeah. or most cases, on private property, destroying crops. Yeah. You know, if I'm a farmer, I can see why you'd call the police and, you know, you prosecute these people if you can catch them. No, you so, immediately charge people to come in and look well, at the crops. You know, the biggest problem with doing that, though, is that one of the reasons why crop circles provoke such a massive emotional response is because they appear in areas of England that have sort of a very magical, ancient, mystical link to them. You kind of sterilize it into like the equivalent of a Disney theme park. <laughs> I, don't, I don't believe the people who are drawn to... If there is an energy there, a genuine anomalous energy, I don't think sterilizing it and having it like the equivalent of something in Walmart, the per, the, you're not going to get that effect. It needs to be... It's kind of like LSD. You know, it's kind of like... Set and setting. Set and setting, yeah. exactly. Yeah. You know, perception of what's going to happen is half the battle in understanding and relating to the nature of the phenomenon. And, you know... Oh, my God, abductions too. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I don't disagree. I'm, and I think a theme park would be pretty short-lived if you did it. <laughs> well, I, I, I wasn't thinking in terms of, like, with characters walking around <laughs> and stuff like that. I was thinking a I'm an area that's, that's segregated that, that people run, and, yeah, you charge, and... You know the people go in, and uh, but I, 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 I am amused by the by the analogy. I can just see it. I can totally see it Disneyfied. This way for the pictogram. <laughs> Hi, I'm Croppy, the Circle Maker. Yeah, that's it. This cute <laughs> little child. So all this makes me wonder where does Croppy Zen, the Circle? Where does Zen come in with the baking of pies at the House of Pies? Um, in the way you choose the pie, you will have this week. Ah, good, good. You like how I. Yes. Did the, yes. the 10 o'clock segue? Yes. Ooh, that was deep. That's what I'm good for. Yeah. Crop circles are round, pies are round. So that was I, deep. Th th thank you for reminding me that you guys are going to the house of pies, and I'm going to... <laughs> I promise we will not have a milkshake without you here. Yeah. Maybe not. Oh, no. Feel free. Have a milkshake. Have, have several. We'll all have milkshakes in honor of <laughs> Uh, uh, Nick, what was your favorite place in the uh, uh, in our short tour today? It's got. I know what it's got to be. Oh, I would. I would say Devil's Gate. Really? Yeah. Really? Yeah. Because to me, you know, sort of having written like you know about Parsons, like final events and all that sort of stuff. I think. I, I think one of the things I've found over the years is that there are certain places that just seem to attract weird shit and ominous stuff. You know, like the Cannock Chase Woods in England, mm -hmm. um, Point Pleasant. And it seems, you know, Devil's Gate, you know, it has a lot of weird, unsettling stuff surrounding it. And that kind of stuff... Did you, me, did kind, you of kind of feel like a Blair Witch kind of thing as we walk through the... Uh, well, kind of, yeah. I mean, you know, sort of tripping there. through the woods and, yeah. you know, jumping over logs and jumping over streams. Yeah, I think it's it's kind of like... And it smelled like sewage. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, I'll give you an example. I, I like, the place I love to go is New Orleans, and I've been there a lot. Huh. And you find there, you know, there's all this talk about voodoo and witchcraft. You can actually walk through 
some of the back streets of New Orleans, and it kind of soaks, you can tell that energy, that weird, almost like an occult energy, yeah. soaks New Orleans. Yeah. And I think kind of you get that at you know Devil's Gate. It's almost as if there's something about the area that you, it's difficult to pinpoint, but there's it's not. It's almost like an unsettling, bad area that has negative vibes for some reason. Yeah, you don't feel right there. No, you don't feel. That's the best way to put it. You don't feel if right. If you had been what well, I just said in two minutes, you summed up in five seconds. You don't <laughs> feel right there. <laughs> If you were plopped down there, not knowing where you came from, and you just uh, you would Sometimes not immediately sit down and say, "Ah, oh, this is a nice, pleasant someone area." Someone would still feel wrong. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and there's trees there, and there's a creek there, and there's you know, mm. but there's it, it, it it's runoff, so it smells like sewage. Yeah. The place just doesn't look right. The rocks really don't look real. I mean, that's a devil's gate. It's a devil's head, which was named for, and it looks fake. It's called fucked up shit. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's it's. I think it's a liminal zone where the there's a thin veil between dimensions there. It's maybe, and that's maybe that's why uh, Crowley, I mean, and Parsons and people around his ilk were drawn to that. I'm sorry, I interrupted you, Paul. No, I was just going to say, um, although it might sound weird coming from me, but I don't, you know, it's like Buffy the Vampire Slayer. What did they used to call him in the TV series? Hell Spons or something like that. So you'd have this girl in Sunnyvale. Why do all the demons and the vampires show up in Sunnyvale in California? Well, A, because you had to for the TV series, but B, within the story, it was because they were on this sort of this devil's gate or whatever down to hell. And, okay, well, could these things actually exist? And if you do believe that there are other dimensions or other places where entities might exist and they might be able to come to our world, I kind of view it like airports. You know, planes fly around the planet, but there's only so many places they can land safely. Mm -hmm. It's not like you can just drop your plane down in my neighborhood. You have to drive, as you guys, uh, as Greg and Nick would know, you have to drive almost 30 miles outside of town. That's where your plane lands, and then you can come in and interact and leave. So maybe these, these things are like airports. You know, where they, you find these places where, for whatever reason, maybe they were built, constructed, and maybe we can't see on the other side or whatever's going on. But these are the places where whatever there is can interact with us or enter our realm or whatever. Yeah, Not door, saying doorway that's what areas. It is. Yeah. Just saying, I actually don't dismiss that because we do it ourselves. Yeah, uh, Paul. When you come out, you. I did not have the weird LA tour set up when you were the, the last time you were out here. You will get the full Royal LA weird LA tour treatment the next time you're here. Excellent. Although the only reason I'd come out to LA now would be to see you or Walter. So well, I'm doing all my business on the other side of the ocean. So. Yeah. Oh, that's right. For now. Yeah, it'll give me even more time to enjoy Los Angeles and, and all of its wonders and milkshakes. <laughs> <laughs> It's ten oh six. Do you want to do you want to bring up another subject? Do you want to go for pie? 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 Sorry, what? I, I what? couldn't hear you. I said it's ten oh six. Does anybody want to bring up another subject to uh lacerate or or is it time for pie? Time for what? Pie. Oh pie. I'm doing the Cartman noise. Oh, okay. Car- <laughs> Cartman pie. <laughs> you guys want some pie? You guys want some pie? Okay. It'll be pie. <laughs> It, I, I was watching um, both Walter and Nick talking, and I realize it's. Um, and I wish uh, that uh, Paul was here too, uh, although he has been in the past. This is Nick's first visit to the studio, yeah, actually. The studio, Phys- never been to the studio. Physical before. visit to the studio. Yeah, cool. And how much different it is to have somebody actually sitting here and talking. It's a completely different dynamic, and that's why, like, 
the the first reason why I like doing the show live is because it's live. And the second reason, if I can get someone in here live, mm-hmm. is that it's completely different um, than doing it pre-recorded over mm-hmm. the phone. Um, I just enjoy it a lot more, and I hope that comes through to people that are listening. So I guess we'll uh, be back next week with uh, Richard Sennett, if you want to listen for that. Paul, uh, yes. anything mm-hmm. you, you want to plug or talk about or um, have up there for when people uh, look at the po- listen to the podcast? Nope, just make sure you play my song when we leave. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, I'm going to have to play that song. How about you, uh, Nick? Um, keep questioning. Don't kiss ass. <laughs> That's about it. Walter, I haven't seen you here in like a few weeks because you've been busy with uh, movie stuff and other stuff. Yeah. Um, it's 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 almost like I have don't have to ask Walter what what would you like to uh, get out there about projects you're doing right now. You're you're far busier than I am. Just I'm real excited about Richard Sennett being here next week. Me um, too. Because I'm publishing his fiction and it really is really fun stuff. He's a real real good writer. And uh, just look look up his name on Amazon.com, and you'll find him there. Um, I've jumped into research on what should be the follow-up to Empire of the Wheel, and oh, hey. boy. Um, oh, boy. Um, and just, you know, doing my usual thing, you know. Um, that's all. It's, it's good to be back here after a few weeks, and I'll probably be back next week, too. You have to keep talking. I haven't found the song yet. Oh, 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 oh. So, uh, <laughs> so anyway, Nick, I was going to ask you: Is there much of a jet lag issue between Texas and here? Probably not too bad. Oh right? no, no. I just I got on the plane. I got a couple of glasses of wine, read a book. Because it's a two-hour thing, right? Two hours. Oh, difference? no, it's about three and a half altogether. No, I mean the di- the time difference. Oh, the time difference is two, two hours, hours. But yeah, I mean, so I, I got in like two o'clock in the afternoon. Oh, and there you go. You just I, stay up till our midnight. Oh yeah, I don't yeah. care about. There you go. Jet lag. I'm, yeah. It's man. It seems to be different. Having done a lot of travel on the job, mm. it seems to be different when it's a fun trip, or yeah. than when it's just pure. International's a little bit different yeah. when you go back to England. But I mean, I don't get any problems in America at all. No. I'll tell you, the toughest I found was going right, from the Middle East to back home here on the West Coast. Oh, I'll bet. Yeah, that was a bitch. It took <laughs> me about. It would take me about. Ten days to mm. get over the jet lag. It was like just forty-five blood clots in your leg. I oh well, yeah. The plane ride's a different <laughs> thing, but just the jet lag. I couldn't go to movies the first two weeks I was home wow. because I would just fall asleep uh-huh. if I sat down in that chair. Uh-huh. I was out. Yeah, so. that's wild. But um, you know, what's Paul's anyway. song anyway? Did you find it? You I'm find trying it? to pull the song down, but it's got this little timer on it thing. You know that thing where it makes you oh, wait okay. so that you'll have to pay. You'll be encouraged to sign up with their ser- oh, okay. service. Oh, I know what I wanted to ask Paul. Are you still there, Paul? Yes. What did you think about REM splitting up? Good question. Yeah. Once they uh, once they the drummer quit, um, you it know, wasn't really REM, REM anymore. But it's you know it's not yeah. the four member REM. So yeah. they've been around for thirty years. They had a really nice run. I like their music. Uh, good for them. You know? Yeah. Get out while they're still good. Mm. I actually hope they stay quit. Yeah, the one yeah. band, the one band that I always liked was the Police. They got out on top, which REM hasn't done. But then you always kind of figure the Police really hated each other so much that they would really stay quit. And then they got back together. The only band I can think of that got out on top and has stayed quit and probably will stay quit is the we'll do a song then about Johnny Marr and Morrissey really do hate each other. <laughs> uh, so if you're gonna if you're gonna quit and have a big announcement, uh, mm-hmm. you know, they just quit. quit. Yeah. So I hope yeah. yeah, just like that's it. We're done. Thank you. Like mm-hmm. the Beatles, good yeah. example. There's another one. You know, they never get back together. Mm-hmm. And 
I don't think they probably ever would have. No. So good yeah, idea yeah. Uh, for them not to. Yeah. Remember when they were good. Yeah. yeah it's like uh, the last time I went and saw the Who like in the eighties, and it was it was kind of. Build as the last tour or something. It's always billed as the last tour, but <laughs> it was pathetic then. Uh, uh, without Keith Moon, obviously. Uh, so and and that used to be John my favorite Hanson. band, huh? Well, I think if people stay away, or if bands stay around for so long, um, you forget just how revolutionary they might have been. Mm, yeah. And R.E.M., in the early to mid-80s, was revolutionary, as was U2. I mean, they were cutting edge, doing things that either no one had done or hadn't been done in quite a while. You know, R.E.M. certainly bored from the Birds and the Beatles, and but they, yeah. they changed it and made it new and different. And that's great. If you keep doing it, though, for 30 years, it's hard to mm. continually sort of be on the cutting edge. Mm-hmm. And I think, I think the Who had it right. You know, don't trust anyone over 30. In the rock world, if you're over 30... I mean, I quit music at 29. And we and waited I long enough, I, and we got the sirens. I would, I would say oh, there we go. Perfect. Yeah. So, and I think the same thing's yeah. true of ufology. I think there should be a cutoff age of about eighty. <laughs> yeah, that's, let's no, give right. everybody yeah. the full experience of the sirens because we've missed them for a couple of weeks. There they go. Oh yeah, that's right. I I believe your song is ready to play here, Paul. What is okay. it? Okay. Well, this one's going to be going out to everybody who is uh, occupying Wall Street and uh, more and more cities as they go along. And it hasn't been reported in the mainstream news until very recently, but... And uh, yeah, the, uh, and very Buffalo's, poorly. What's the song? The, uh, the Buffalo uh, Springfield one said there's something happening here, and I think you're going to see a lot more of it in the, next, in the weeks to come. Geez, I hope so. Uh, he's talking about the occupation of Wall Street and all no, the... all the, pro- the Oh, what's the song? What's the song? Oh, it's, uh, it's an old Phil Oaks song, Ringing... What's the title, Greg? I always forget. Yeah. Ringing the Revolution? Something like that. You, you pinkos. Uh, the I'm, ringing I'm of revolution. You pinkos. There you go. <laughs> yeah, it, and you know what? It's applicable to ufology, too, because if you continue to stay in your ivory towers, uh, yeah. eventually, not only are you going to be able to sort of manage the change, the change is going to manage you. And uh, I think maybe that's what we'll see in the UFO field. Yeah, we've seen it recently, ready. actually. So you can either get out in front of it and be part of it, or you can get left behind. You can and, surf uh, the wave, sort of, or you can uh, wipe out. Exactly, and that's what the song's about. I'm right in there with protesters that are all about... Okay, here's, here's a song. Um, do you want to stay on, Paul, or do you want to uh, talk later? No, we'll talk later. You guys go get your pie, and I'll wander into the computer and listen to the song. All right, Paul. Thanks so much for coming on. I, I was I was glad that you can one come on and two stay on for the whole time while while uh, Nick was in town. Um, very rare thing to have you all on at once, and it's always fun. Thanks. No worries, guys. Good talking to all of you, and have a safe trip home, Nick. Okay. Uh, Paul says have a safe trip home. Oh, thanks, Paul. Toodaloo. Talk to you later. All righty. Cool. See ya. Thank you, Paul. Let's play that song for him. The Pinko song is, is uh, Walter Causey. This is a fictional song, a cinematic song. You've got a picture, this mansion on the top of a hill housing the last of the idle rich. What a second. Why did it do that? That dog stole your tablet. Wow, it cuts off the song right in the middle for an ad. The dog stashed them in the park. Now they're up. That is, that, 
its revenge. Capitalism gets its revenge. Cut <laughs> off in the middle of the song for a commercial. I'm going to add the song off air and edit it in before I post it. How about that? There you go. I get around it. There you go. Uh, I can. I'll find oh, it and edit it out. I love the irony. <laughs> <laughs> so good. You gotta admit that's good. That is funny. Wow, it cut the song off and started playing an ad, and I don't know where the song went. In a building of gold with riches untold Live the families in which the country was founded And the merchants of style with their vain velvet smiles were there for they also were hounded And the soft middle class crowded into the last For the building was fully surrounded And the noise outside was the ringing of revolution Sadly they stared and sank in their chairs And searched for comforting notion And the rich silver walls looked ready to fall As they shook in doubtful devotion The ice cubes would clink as they freshened their drinks Wet their minds in bitter emotion and they talked about the ringing of revolution We were hardly aware of the hardships they bed For our times taken with treasure Oh, life was a game and work was a shame and pain was prevented by pleasure The world cold and gray Was so far away In distance only money could measure But their thoughts were broken By the ringing of revolution And the clouds filled the room In darkening doom As the crooked smoke rings were rising How long will it take? How can we escape? Someone asks, but no one's advising And the quivering floor responds to the roar In a shade no longer surprising as closer and closer comes the ringing of revolution So softly they moan, please leave us alone As back and forth they are pacing And they cover their ears and try not to hear With pillows of silk they're embracing The crackling crowd is laughing out loud Peeking in at the target they're chasing Now trembling inside the ringing of revolution
With compromise sway We gave it half away When we saw that rebellion was a-growing Now everything's lost As they kneel by the cross Where the blood of Christ is still flowing Too late for their sorrow They've reached their tomorrow And reaped the seed they were sowing Now harvested by the ringing of revolution In tattered tuxedos they face the new heroes And crawl about in confusion And they sheepishly grin for their memories were dim Of the decades of dark execution Hollow hands raised, they stood there amazed In the shattering of their illusions As the windows were smashed by the ringing of revolution Down on our knees, we're begging you, please We're sorry for the way you were driven There's no need to taunt, just take what you want And we'll make amends if we're living But away from the ground, the flames told the town That only the dead are forgiven as they vanished inside the ringing of revolution.